Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey Hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. A uh, little inside scoop here for listeners. Brody was just telling me that Brody was just hunting with Hayden Samick. How many times has he won trivia? Three? No. He, he was on a hot streak, and it's it's been cold for a while. Well, yeah, because he was the emerging threat, mm-hmm. and then he became the receding threat. Or what was the waning, word? The wa- waning champion. Oh, no, the waning <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. waning champion. Waning champion. <laughs> so Brody was telling me a story in which, in private, between me and Brody. So we're going to talk about it The door must have been open. I don't know. Yep. Because Brody's telling me about him overcalling while turkey hunting. And I just stepped outside. <laughs> and he's sitting out there. He goes, Hey, man, I need to talk to you. No, I wasn't overcalling. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be so embarrassed when he hears this. It's like uh, we were having a private conversation in there. Dude, man. it sounded like a herd of turkeys like down there where he was at. He's eavesdropping. He's got like a recording device. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like the. Surveillance state, you know who'd appreciate that? Jack Carr. Hey, hey. Oh, nice. what's, what's Jack Carr here with us? Great transition. That is. That's. I've never had a transition. Yeah. Like what, that. what are your opinions on eavesdropping? <laughs> you don't like. Be careful. Yeah. No, I'm not a big fan. But this is probably the most heavily bugged room in Bozeman. Uh, with yeah. all the back <laughs> Yeah. That's that's Steve's yeah. paranoia as well. Uh huh. I I get it. I get it. Be careful. That, that's what I'd say. No. I, well, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you a little bit about that. Uh. Jack Carr is here. New York Times best-selling author, like multiple times. Yeah, all of them now. Yeah, all of them. All of them. Crazy. Damn it, man. Crazy. Now I don't want to have mine. <laughs> That's a good track record. New York Times best-selling author every time. A new book out releases on. You can order. You can pre-order it now, but releases on 
May 16th, only the dead. Uh, five other previous titles. Terminal list. Um, if you guys sit around watching Amazon Prime and you happen to see Chris Pratt in a thing called Terminal List, that is and has been for a long time. That's Jack Carr's book. That's based off your book. Right. And not only that, Jack Carr, you, you uh, I was surprised when we had dinner last night. Not surprised, but pleased to hear when we had dinner last night that you get to be involved in all that. Yeah. Like from a writing from a writing standpoint. Yeah, because usually they get rid of the author right away. They don't want the author to be there and uh, on set and see what's going on and start yelling, you ruined my vision. And uh, so they like to <laughs> kind of move the author to the side right away and then bring the writing team in and, and yep. get going. But I went into it kind of you know, being a kid of the 80s. I grew up reading all these thrillers growing up and then watching the movies that were adapted from those books and noting the differences and what worked and what didn't, but more so realizing that there was going to be changes because you are telling a story now through a different medium. You are telling that story visually. So it's going to change. And you have a writer's room. So and you have people, all these people are going to, it's going to be two hours long. And it's going to be, this one is six. So, no, sorry, eight. So every episode is about an hour. So yep. there's eight episodes. Um, but yeah, you can't tell everything. You have to kind of morph things a little bit. You have to add to th- that, things that weren't in the book. So that's just how it goes. But I always thought back when I, my first conversation with the showrunner, who's like in series television, he's like the director of a feature film. So yep. he's ma- managing multiple directors and he's like the single point of contact for all these different things that go into making a TV show. Um, we had our first conversation in December of 2019. His name is David DeGen- amazing guy and uh, I think I put him at ease by talking about First Blood and how First Blood and that came out in 1972 uh, never been out of print since written by David Morrell and the movie with Sylvester Stallone in the early 80s those are two very different animals but they're both awesome but very different Got so it. I knew that there was going to be changes and more so it was important to Chris and to Antoine and to me was keeping the theme of the book keeping that spirit alive even if there were going to be changes so uh, that's what we did uh, as as someone who um, traffics and intrigue and espionage mm. and whatnot, you're familiar with John. Is it does he lock Lacar or How does yeah, he John Lacare? So John it is Lacare. Yep, I think so. That's how I've always said it yeah. in the last almost fifty years. He's got a great quote where he said, "Watching your book get made into a movie. This isn't your experience, but he said watching your book get made into a movie is like watching an ox turned into a bullion cube." <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I've not heard him say that one. I've heard similar ones, but not him say that those exact words. Um, but yeah, I mean, he and his have been since the seventies. They've been making those into, sure. into films and TV shows. And um, but I mean, what an amazing track record that guy had. He had a good run. He had no, a solid no. run, no. and they'll continue to make his books into to films and TV shows going forward. I'm sure. Um, what the hell was I going to tell you about something about that? Another uh, film quote. Oh, there's a. Uh, there's a comedy. You're, you're, you're familiar with the comedy, The Producers? It's I haven't like seen Broadway. it. Yeah, it's like yeah, a, I know what it is, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, there's a line in there where the producers are producing, and they get so sick of the writer as they're making this play. They get so sick yeah. of the writer. One of them says, next time, no writers. No writers. <laughs> no, I'm going to have to watch it now, because now I can see how that could happen. But uh, no, I was very fortunate. The team we put together, starting with Antoine Fuqua and Chris Pratt and that showrunner, David Agilio, uh, we put such a solid team together. And now we're continuing that into this next spinoff. So working on those right now, and I'm writing one of those episodes. Um, and then we'll go right from that into True Believer, which is the second book in the series. So we'll just keep uh, keep going. 
That's great. Yeah, oh, fingers crossed. Man. You never know oh. what's actually on the screen, though, so you can't really get too excited until you actually see it on the screen because there's so many things that can derail throughout the whole process. Oh, um, sure. So it's, uh, yeah. And so I never really talk, even talked about it too much until it actually came out or until, until they started putting commercials on TV. They put a commercial in front of Top Gun Maverick in the theaters for it. And uh, so when they started doing that, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty certain this is going to come out on July 1st now. But even so, I still, you know, still a little nervous until it actually hit screens. You got to have a lot of mega fans who, um, who are just pissed when you compare. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. Well, that's and not what happened. Yeah, because what, uh, yeah, you know. And, and I tried to prep as much as I possibly could through my podcast and social posts and stuff and just kind of prep people kind of slowly getting them used to the idea of it being a little different. Um, but still, regardless, when it comes out, there are those people who will take your book, watch the show. This was different. That was different. That was different. I hate it. And that's just going to happen, which is what's great about the spinoff is that there's no book to compare it to yet so the the, so it's just creating there's characters that that i've created but it's a backstory so there's no book about the backstory so there's nothing for someone to sit there and just compare it to just looking for something to to nitpick or some looking for a reason to hate it you know and that's just kind of uh the world we live in today people uh, love they do backstory sequels yes yes you're you're positioned perfectly wait a few years and then be like little little guy Growing up on the farm. There it is. Did you know that Michael Mann <laughs> um, did, was it like a Heat after two Heat is a book or a prior? It's by my bedside. It's, it's awesome. On my, it's by read, my bed. You yeah. haven't no, read it yet? Yeah, so, like, so good. Here's like this phenomenal, it's, 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 it's a little bit more than a cult classic, but at this point it has a very oh, yeah. like cultish, Yeah, like I, I make a point to watch Heat every two, three years. Me too. Nice. Oh, I love that but, the, the, but he's a director, he's not a writer. So the fact that he went and wrote this, but is it after or before? It's like a prequel sequel, I think. Oh, it's it's awesome. before and after. Yeah, I think It's so. a great book. Have you ever read it yet? It is okay, amazing. I Meg Gardner wrote it with Michael Mann, and she's an incredible author. And I had her on my podcast. We talked about it, and she's just oh, amazing. Great. But the book, it exceeded expectations. That's and, you, and that's hard to do. When Sorry, what is movie. the book? Heat 2. Oh. Yeah. And the, the cover looks like... The movie poster, essentially. Tarantino did something similar with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. He, he wrote he wrote his own novelization of his yep. movie, but he added scenes and changed dialogue and made it a little bit different. Like it's kind of cool, fun. Yeah, novelizations used to be a big big thing in the the 80s into the 90s. So you read a book based on a screenplay, um, but it kind of fell out of out of favor here. Uh, it you know, seems ass backward for sure, man. Yeah, there's a, uh, so David Morrell wrote a novelization based on the screenplay for Rambo: First Blood Part Two and for Rambo Three, and they're fantastic. They are really good. And they uh, at least Rambo: First Blood Part Two made the New York Times list for uh, quite a few weeks huh. uh, when it came out uh, in conjunction with the movie in 1985. Got it. And uh, yeah, yeah, David Morrell is just an in- incredible talent, amazing guy. Um, proud to call him a-, a friend now. Just honored to honored to know him. But yeah, so he did those novelizations, and uh, I'm collecting them actually. That's why I'm so up on the novelizations. So I'm collecting <laughs> the old ones from the 80s that I that I had back then that I've kind of misplaced over the years. So I'm collecting all those uh, novelizations and some that I didn't know existed. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So. My buddies and I still, uh, on occasion, uh, say, I just wanted a cup of coffee from Rambo first. Oh, which is just great. Look, who's just looking for something to eat? Just looking <laughs> oh, for something to eat. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah I, put a, I put a little nod to uh, Will Teasel in this upcoming novel and Only the Dead. So for, for fans such as yourself, uh, you'll be reading through it and be like, oh. So I, I try to throw a few things in there. This one nice. I threw, um, like fans of Magnum will recognize in all my books, I throw a little something in there. They're pretty subtle. 
So I get those in there. Uh, this one, I have some Magnum stuff in there. It's all very subtle. James Bond stuff in there, Lethal Weapon in there, and uh, First Blood in there. <laughs> oh, but that's you have amazing. To look. Yeah, you have, you have to be on, on your toes, though. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, doesn't say the thing and then say, from the movie First Blood or anything like that. It's just, it's just woven in. And uh, to the fabric for for people that pretty much the people that grew up in the eighties. Excellent, yeah, love it. We're gonna in a little bit. We're gonna talk about how your mom was a librarian, which I love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It all starts with books. It all started with books. Uh, speaking of show business and books, God, man, it's another great transition. Did you catch that? I did. That was smooth. Speaking Feel of show business and, and books, so here's here's a little show. We're, we're, here's a little show business lesson for you. When. When I sold my books to Random House, like they buy world rights to the book. And so they can then sell, they can then sell the audio rights to someone else. And a long time ago, a decade ago, um, they weren't doing a bunch of audio. Audio just wasn't what it is now. So they, I think, so when I sold Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter to Random House, they turned around and sold the audio rights to Brilliance. And had some, I mean, I don't, man, you know, I don't know if he's listening. <laughs> Probably is. A feller. They, they get someone to read it. And it's just not how it's, it's just, it's wrong. It's immoral. <laughs> but they got someone to read it. But they only had the audio rights for 10 years. So we just got back the audio rights. So I was able to go. This happened with my Buffalo book, too. A decade went by, and I was able to get back my publisher got back the audio rights. And then I, a couple weeks ago, went back into the studio and read 10 years later, Wow, my own damn book. Did you learn anything? <laughs> oh, that's what I'm going to get to. A lot of things, like I had a lot of, like not a lot, like op opinions I had that I don't really have anymore or opinions I had that were accentuated that, that just have gotten more complicated. And when I did my Buffalo book, there was there was stuff there was like scientific understandings about about like from like genetics work, stuff about the first Americans, um, stuff about when waves of animal migrations came and how things died out and didn't just it just changed yep. and became uh like objectively different. And I, I fixed some of the objectively different things. But yeah, and reading it, there's everything. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'd put it that way now. But we're going to tack on to the end of this episode. We're going to tack on a chapter of it's just going to be like glued right on to the end of the show. We're going to tack on a chapter of a book I wrote a long time ago and just recorded the audio now. And if you want to go find that audio book, I don't know, can you put a link in there? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. If you want to go find the whole audio book and pick it up, go find the whole audio book and you listen to the whole damn thing if you don't like to read. Uh, at, also at the end of the show, God, the just transitions keep coming. <laughs> Man. Also at the end of the show, we put, <laughs> so there's a song, a lot of love and hate. So many is people it is about it, this. Is it mostly hatred? Um... There's some love. There's some not knowing what the hell it is. There's some like, this is awful. It's a musician. There's a musician, Christopher Denny. I understand he has a, he, he likes this, to pull this, a cork. This is about our, our new outro song. I understand he likes to pull a cork. I understand he's got, he's had a lot of, uh, he, he likes to 
party. Steve, I've noticed a lot of your favorite musicians have like crippling drug or alcohol addictions. <laughs> it, that's very true. Yeah. I don't know why. Okay. As someone who doesn't, I don't know why. Uh, yeah. Likes to party. That's a euphemism for likes to, I, you know, likes to party is a euphemism for likes to do. Yeah, I don't know where he's at on it right now. Christopher Denny. <laughs> One day we had a podcast episode where we like argued about a thing way too long. That's uh, probably not the, the only time. And it was like someone, there was a comment like, you'd like beat the horse to death. It was a Christopher Denny song where in the end of the song he says, We've done beat this horse to death. It's time to ride on. And I wanted to glue it onto the end of that episode, but never got around to it. So now it's glued onto the end of every episode. <laughs> <laughs> it somehow seems appropriate. <laughs> Yet we still beat dead horses into the underworld. <laughs> so if you're listening so. at the end of the show and you're annoyed by Chris Denny, who my kids feel is a woman, um, uh, but it's not. Is it just a clip or the whole song? No, it's a clip. It's the end of his song, Ride On. It's about having beat a horse to death. I wonder if that song's going to get a bump on Spotify. Uh, I would suggest people go listen to the whole album. If the roses don't kill us. <laughs> Is he You're, local? How do you how do you guys I don't know how I know this? about him. I just found out about him probably on Spotify. I don't know how I found out about Christopher Denny. Mm. You ever hunted alligators? I have. Oh. I have, yeah. Uh, Where'd you hunt him? In Texas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little little while ago, but uh, yeah, about 10 years ago now, I guess. But yeah, it was an interesting experience. It was quite an interesting experience. You'll appreciate this. A few episodes ago, on an episode titled Wrestling Gators, we had a crocodilian biologist on. Mm. A lot of folks wrote in. And I said, the bio, you know, biologists are always like very measured. They don't want to say stuff that isn't for positive. Okay. And I said, man, our listeners are going to have a lot of comments that would begin with shit, right? Like, <laughs> like shit, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I said, if you got any, if you have a lot of comments that begin with shit, send them to us. A number of them. I'm a bit disappointed that a croc biologist didn't have a good answer for how to easily tell the difference between a croc and an alligator. It's really quite easy. One will see you later, the other after a while. But <laughs> <Bum-bum. laughs> <Bum-bum. laughs> so Write that many down. people wrote in with that is embarrassing. Really? Yeah. Wow. I deleted. Pretty yeah. even included many. The alligator experience though for me wasn't more it was less hunting and more fishing and execution. Huh. Yeah. That makes oh. sense to those who yeah. are big baited treble just, hook. Yeah, yeah, that was the one on the, uh, jugs with the uh, chicken that's been sitting out in the sun oh. for a while. You know that sort of a. So I was just kind of just observing. I hadn't done that yeah. that before. So yeah, it's interesting. I know interesting. a few folks on the Florida side that have an area where where alligators like to sun, uh-huh. and they'll you slip up on them. on them with, and half of them hunt with recurves. Oh wow! And and stick them on the beach. No kidding. Yeah, I think that'd be. A little more sporting, perhaps, than the way I did it. It feels a little more like the hunting than the fishing. How I felt, are they I felt more like a mafioso, you know. How are they killing them fast enough with a bow to, like, get Oh, they probably them? hit them in with a bang stick once they rat, get them in. It's like bow fishing rig. I No, it's not a bow fishing That's rig. What, I, what? They're just whacking them in, in the back of the head. 
from what I understand. No. <sighs> it sounds like a meat eater episode, bro. Go check it yeah, out. There's a couple different ways to do it. Yep. It seems like, sounds like someone's yeah. going to write in an email. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'd like to know more details. Well, I really, mean, not, not putting a rope onto them. No, but I mean, you know, they all, they do like the spin of death and stuff like that. I, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's technique behind all of it. The people who do it well. A couple of people just got munched in the last week down at Yes, they did. Oh, got yeah. that. Well, a yeah. guy. That uh, lady on the, the, the guy and then the lady. It's the only thing that makes golf courses intriguing to me. <laughs> exactly. A well, senior citizen got his last week. A senior citizen got his leg tore off. Mm-hmm. When they showed up, the alligator still had his foot in his mouth. Golf mm-hmm. course. Yep. There's mm-hmm. another thing that I don't want to talk about because it involves kids and that kind of stuff I don't mm-hmm. like to talk about. Uh, on that episode, we were talking about indigenous uses for alligators. And a listener wrote in that when he was at Texas Tech University, he worked on a project about the Karen Kawa Indians from East Texas and West Louisiana. They used uh, gator fat as a repellent, mosquito repellent. Interesting. They'd render it down and spread it over their bodies. And um, European explorers would comment that you could smell them quite a ways off because of that gator fat. Hmm. Uh, Here's a crazy one. They had, so for whatever reason, the, they have these gator, these crocodile mummies from Egypt. Okay. Uh, Which I had no idea. So you have thousands of year old crocodile mummies and they were doing them with CT scans in 2010 and here they're looking at a thousands year old crocodile mummy with a CT scan and he's got a fishing hook in his gut oh that's amazing yeah I love that and there's pictures of crocodile mummies they're crazy looking beautiful they didn't say what the hook was made out of, did you they? You know, that's, that's where the was... email, just if that person's listening, that's where the email really fell short. Because it's <laughs> like, it makes Thanks, it Ramsey. sound like it's like a modern looking metal fish hook, kind of. No, it's an old ass hook. I know, but it like, it says we notice a perfect fish hook, but I like, I don't know what that means. Like, no, he, he, that like he, he felt, old... I don't want to criticize him, but since you brought it up, yeah, listener, pull it together. He, he it's a debarbed circle hook. He acknowledges right. that he didn't include. He includes a picture of the the crocodile mummy, but does he acknowledges not including a picture of the hook? Yes. Oh. Yeah, you'd think it'd be bone. Yeah, something. Wow. Yeah, yeah, depending on how old it is. But I said Iron Age. I said this to Corinne the other day. This this defies understanding. <laughs> a Texas dairy farm. Yeah. Okay. It defies understanding. 18,000 dairy cows. I'll repeat that. 18,000 dairy cows killed in an explosion at a Texas dairy farm. And that's about 20% of cattle slaughtered in this country on any given day. Yeah, it's the largest like loss of cattle life since... Like the Galveston hurricane or something like that. Or... No, I think it's even more than that. 18,000. Really? Stinky. I don't even know what to say. I'm not going to say anything. 
They're having a hard time. I told that dog during carcasses. <laughs> I told the dog, to which dog said, "Well, why would you have eighteen thousand cows <laughs> together, anyways?" <laughs> Uh, Wolverine sighting four times outside of Portland, Oregon for the first time in three decades. I have a feeling they're seeing the same Wolverine. Mm-hmm. They think so, but then for the fourth time, they're not sure. I think that's Come what on. it is. 30 years goes by, no Wolverine. And then all of a sudden there's four outside of Portland. No, they. I mean, they think it's probably the same, the same one going around. Nike and Puma to stop using kangaroo leather. Or if that company, remember when I was a little kid, they had a shoe company called Ruse? Yeah, man. Mm. They had the little pocket, the pocket. on the side. Yeah, yeah. Are they yeah, fixing yeah. the stop? I don't even, maybe they never did use kangaroos. I think they're called Ruse because of the pocket, Ruse not because shoes. of leather. I'm oh, that they're now. phasing it out by the end of 2023. I don't know. I, you know, I take anything like this. Like, uh, I take anything. I don't, I don't like anything like this. Well, there's a massive population issue with, with kangaroos. Like, yeah. they, they breed like crazy. And that these are like free range animals, not farmed animals that they're rounding up. So it's like, whoa, who's going to pay for taking care of the overabundance no, of yep. kangaroos? I should conclude that. And we've talked about that in the past mm-hmm. is they kill absurd numbers of kangaroos every year as agricultural control. Yeah, as control, as in somebody else is paying to have it done. So, Oregon, Oregon. Uh, this comes after the introduction of a bill in mid-January in Oregon where Nike is headquartered that would ban the sale of any part of a dead kangaroo or any product containing a part of a dead kangaroo. The punishment would include up to a year in prison, a $6,250 fine, or both. There's also a bipartisan bill that was introduced in the House of Representatives, the Kangaroo Protection Act. Oh my God. Yeah, it seems like yeah. uh, they got other things they could be focusing on here. Oh, they have everything else <laughs> wrapped up. Everything else is perfect. So now they get to focus on the nitpicky stuff. Yes. The global commercial kangaroo product industry was worth roughly $200 million annually to Australia. The U.S. was its second largest global market at $80 like million. 2021 figures, more or less. What was kind of staggering is that the government estimated. Uh, the Australian government estimated that there were uh, 42.7 million kangaroos for 26 million Australians. And you get a kangaroo. And you get a kangaroo. <laughs> yeah. Here's I'm who learning all... so much. This is great. I'm learning so yeah. much. Here's who all has ditched K leather. Yeah. Versace. Is that how you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Versace. Diane von Furstenberg, which oh, doesn't not sound Diane. like a thing that I would buy. A Diane von Furstenberg? That sounds like a person. Sounds who, like they, a Nazi villain. No, it sounds like someone who. It sounds like someone who inherited a lot of money. You know, she's just. If, high fashion, if your name's guys. von Furstenberg, you probably just get money. Right. I thought it was like just a, sign it and be like, no, 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 no. Hold on, hear me out. My last name is von Furstenberg. Yeah, you know the harpsichord right. manufacturer. <laughs> Uh, Victoria Beckham, Salvatore Ferragamo, and Paul Smith. That just seems like a, your, your HVAC guy. Paul Smith all have gone, unlike Salvatore Ferragamo and Diane von Furstenberg, even Paul Smith has gone K-free, K-leather-free. 
I wonder if the how many of those people are associated with PETA as well. I'm gonna sleep better tonight knowing all this. <laughs> uh, this is the last thing. This is the last thing, Jack. I know. Oh, taking notes. Um, this is hot off. This is hot off the press because I just okay. So I was just in Wisconsin. I think for my fourth annual spring, for my fourth annual. The fourth annual time I've taken my kids to Wisconsin to hunt turkeys, but the third annual youth turkey season, in which my uh, older boy, who already thinks that he's invincible, I catch like a tur- I see a strutter coming, and it's like he's not going to get closer. And I see a strutter coming, and I, and I just compute in my head that it's pretty far away. But we have like a. You know, we got a good turkey choke, iron sights, spent a lot of time patterning the gun. Uh, and I already know it's like a stretch. And I'm like, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. So by the time he gets around to getting everything lined up, shoots, and the turkey just goes down. But I stand up, and that turkey is way out there. I pasted off. That turkey was 70 yards away. What? Oh, wow. So I would have never, if I'd known that, I stood up and this turkey's like a speck. <laughs> <laughs> he got lucky. So now he's like, I'm going to start taking all the, he's got the shell and he wants to put the beard in the shell. He's like, and I'm going to write the distance on the shell and I'm going to oh, do that. No. <laughs> oh. Nice. Anyhow, spring turkey in Wisconsin is two days long. And you can get boned by the weather, like two days. You could have two days of bad weather. So as I'm there, I realize that there's this thing. I asked Durkin to, Pat Durkin to explain this a little bit. Okay. Ready for this? I am ready. Wisconsin has, okay. <sighs> Wisconsin has a peculiar way. Okay. Here, here's how to get into this. If you listen, you remember we were talking about how, how it was put to sort of like a public vote of sorts to determine whether you'd be able to start spearing northerns in Wisconsin. I was surprised that you can't spear northerns in Wisconsin, but you cannot spear northerns in Wisconsin. The thinking being, I guess, that people will accidentally spear muskies. Pat Durkin points out, how can you be trusted to hit ducks flying through the air and know what they are? Mm -hmm. In the rain and sleet, you're trusted to identify flying ducks but you can't be trusted to look down a hole in the ice and identify a northern and a muskie, which is a great point. I think that you could trust people to do this. And I was surprised by how Wisconsin sets these things. And there's a thing called, uh, I don't want to criticize before I even explain it, but there's a thing called Aldo Leopold's worst idea. Hmm. Some people know it as, but there's this thing called the Wisconsin Conservation Congress. It consists of five elected members from each county. So there are 72 members in all. Of Doug Duren is one of these from Richland County. He is one of Richland County's, our very own Doug Duren, is one of Richland County's citizen representatives. Everyone listening could learn a lesson from Doug, many lessons from Doug Duren. Um, what, what you shouldn't pick up from Doug is the idea that it makes sense to drive around listening to Grateful Dead concerts on satellite radio. <laughs> that is a bad idea of Doug's. Most everything else that Doug says is good. Uh, Doug, instead of sitting around bitching and moaning about the fish and game laws in the DNR, 
Doug gets in there and gets in there. Always. If there's like a public comment period, he makes a public comment. He's on a citizen's advisory panel. He's on the Deer Citizens Advisory Panel. He, if he's mad, it, he can be mad. He's got a right to be mad because he got in there and got involved. And he's constantly harassed by people who do nothing but bitch and don't do any of these things. Yep. But the idea behind this board is they're tackling issues and then they take what they think to the game commission who should then implement these suggestions. Yep. So which they may or may not do. Yeah, this it's such a peculiar way to handle things. I'm going to I'm going to dig in a little bit. Dirk can kind of explain it. The Wisconsin I already said that. So it's got uh, five elected members from each county. So there's 72 in all. Is that possible? Could something times 5 be 72? No. Someone's lying. Or someone died. Uh the WCC holds a joint hearing each April with the Department of Natural Re- Resources to propose changes, improvements to hunting, fishing, and trapping rules and other conservation matters, air, water, and other environmental issues. This year's ballot. So the, 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 the Congress puts together questions. The questions then go to a public vote so they can sort of ascertain how the public feels about certain fish and game issues. This year's ballot had 76 questions, 38 fish and wildlife rule changes, and 38 WCC advisory questions. To become a state rule, a citizen's proposal must go through a five-step process. So on and on and on. I'm going to get to the main part of this. So it's interesting because you can take these little, you can take these ideas and put them like very nuanced fish and game ideas and put them to a public opinion. And it's interesting because you can start getting an idea of what the public thinks about stuff. For instance, we talked about, um, we talked about the spear fishing thing in Wisconsin. Should you be able to uh, spear northerns through the ice? Uh, here's the here's the results. Yes, three thousand one hundred and forty three Wisconsinites said you should. No, three thousand three hundred fifty five said no. Huh. So it got beat by a narrow margin. And no opinion. Three thousand five hundred two had no opinion. So they had ten thousand Wisconsinites like weighed in on their opinion Jeez. about this. And so I I think this has a a low likelihood of advancing. Now, here's an interesting way to measure public sentiment. There's a two-day youth deer season. They put that to a vote. Should we expand it to four days? Youth deer. Should we expand youth deer to four? Doug Doug was imagining the people down there who are opposed. If the kids are gonna hunt, I'm gonna hunt. And that is true. Should youth deer season be four days instead of two? Yes. 3,492. 44%. No. 3,649 <laughs> or 46%. No opinion? 825. A lot more people had an opinion, but it got shot down. Now, this is the last one we're going to touch on. 
Because here's how nuanced it is. How about youth turkey season? Should we move that from two days to four? Yes. 4,872. No, 2,855. So there's some bit where you're like, ah, turkeys? Sure. Deer? Uh uh. <laughs> These kids are going to get them all. This is the, so just a little glimpse into the psychology of, uh, of, and, 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 you like, here's the thing. When it comes to wildlife management, people are always, and myself included, rise ridiculing ballot box biology, mm. right? Like, leave it to the professionals. Leave it to the professionals. And it shouldn't go to votes, right? Like, reintroducing wolves in Colorado. You shouldn't put that to a vote. Leave it to the professionals. Um, but here, I don't know. There's like an elegance to it. But I, but I think it should be taken as a... Um, it's part of a process. It's part of a step. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's not like they just vote in everything. But when you go to set the law, uh, it gives you, as a, as a law makes you the process, it's like an interesting to get a sense of public opinion. Absolutely. And like when we talk about making scientific management, the assumption is, is like, well, that scientific management is going to be on behalf of the hunting community. Right. But often that scientific management takes into account the hunting perspective, but also like the rangeland ecology perspective of all these ranchers out there with animals on uh, state ground and on public ground that borders state WMAs, <clears throat> et cetera, and how they are going to be affected by those deer elk populations as well. So, and everybody's a voter. Well, part of making the rules is keeping, you know, people happy and interested and out in the field too, Yeah, right? providing opportunity. Yeah. What is opportunity? Quality opportunity is a huge, huge phrase. My view on that youth turkey deal, which I'm following closely and I have really leaned on Doug to push on that hard, um, is that I think it comes down to who's got kids. Uh, I was just going to, I got kids, so I'm a super big supporter. If I didn't have kids, I'd be like, screw those kids. <laughs> and then, uh, but the soonest it'll get enacted is 2025. So we're still going to be, we're still going to be weather vulnerable next year. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy, you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes 
and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on Onyx, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So your mom was a librarian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transi- <laughs> as far as transitions. Transitions. Yeah. transitions. Speaking of, Jack Carr's uh, was a librarian. Yeah. Be Before we get to that, though, did you see that uh, wolves in Northern California? Have you seen that yet? I know about them. Yeah. Just migrating through, do they have a established breeding? I don't know. Just there, some I think trail cams, a, but I, I wasn't sure. Around Shasta. Yeah, yeah. 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 exactly. Huh. Yeah. Trail cams catching them. There, so I don't know. There's plenty of good That'd be interesting. They're good coming, country. dude. Yeah. I interviewed uh, a very, very nice lady who runs uh, a, a big operation. I, I apologize if you're listening. I can't remember your name, but they do a lot of like the noxious weed mm. mitigation with uh, sheep and goats. Mm. And they had uh, one of the wolves that came through a few years ago and knocked out some of their some of a their mitigation crew. A few yeah. years ago in California? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah they've recently. been like... Traipsing been up there through. for a while. Yeah. Probably, I don't know, probably originating from that Frank Church group, I'm guessing. Yeah. It got into Oregon, California. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. That'll be interesting. It's hard to imagine. I don't picture California firing up a wolf season <laughs> <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> Maybe those people surprise you now, dude. Oh, man. Maybe they'll be like, this has gone too far. And in your book, speaking of your book, though, by the way, uh, when you read it, have you read the other ones, or was this the first time you've read the full I've thing? I've read three. You've read three. But you're that probably, one... You're good at it. You seem like you'd be good at it. 
just from reading right here. Because I only read the new forward to a new edition of the terminal list. So yep. I wrote about I read how that forward. it, the forward, so it's a new one about how the, the show came to be and how I got to meet oh, no, Chris I didn't read and Antoine. So it's the one with Chris Pratt on the cover and we put in some pictures from the, from the show in there yep. and stuff like that to make a special limited edition thing. And instead of Ray Porter, who's my narrator reading that, we decided I'd do it. So I ran the, the cord into the closet in the, the house and I put a bunch of clothes and hangers everywhere until it sounded okay. Little sound booth. Had the director <laughs> in my Phil's ear. Language yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It looked very Phil, similar Phil, to this. Phil Pert right now. That's the direction and, uh, we're going to go in the new studio. Just, just <laughs> a bunch of t-shirts. Closet. Exactly what it was. <laughs> Jack, yeah. Jack's clothes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so you yeah. use a, uh, like a trained voice actor for yours? Yeah. 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 So Ray Porter, he's, uh, he's an amazing guy, Shakespearean trained actor who, who does it. Yeah, because you're, but um, you, because it's like, it's like, Accents, thriller. It's, it's like it's, a thriller too, though. So it's got to have like it's got to be gotta a deliver actor. a cadence. Yeah, exactly. Steve you felt, have to have an actor. He, he had felt that a uh, like a flunky soap opera actor had read oh. one of his books. <laughs> Not that I felt. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But it was hard. I mean, it was only like five pages, maybe six, yeah. and I hadn't written it years ago. I had written it days ago, and I'm reading it, and it was difficult. So I now I have I had an appreciation for Ray and all those guys who do this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I appreciate it even more. And they have to do those accents, too. I'm just reading my own voice, my own words, just setting up what's coming and how the show came to be and everything. And that was difficult enough for whatever reason. But now, now, so now when I'm writing, I think about, oh, I should probably put the accent, the Russian accent up front instead of mentioning it like halfway down the page. So he has to now go back and like oh, put this it. Russian accent in with a, a hint of this or that. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the German from with the Berlin accent or whatever, that sort of a thing. So he has to go figure out what that is. Um, better to let him know up front. But anyway, it was difficult. So anyway, I was just curious if you had written, uh, read all your books uh, out loud like that. Yeah, and I used to, uh, yeah, I used to not be allowed to, but now, uh, I don't know, you know, now I'm allowed to. Hey, here you I go. Liked, I, I don't like doing it, but I love, I mean, I don't, you get a sore throat. Yeah. It's long. I mean, he's, it's about, he said it was about double. Uh, so if it's a 14 hour read, 14 hour book, it's about double that, what it took him to mm. actually read it and actually do it. So about a 30 hour deal. Does he read you know, it at the pace that we hear it? Because I heard the prologue. Um of your new book, but does he read at the pace that we hear it, or is there any kind of that is a good messing question. with the, you know, just just I because think it's of the cadence that he and reading. some people speed books up just to get through them uh, uh-huh. faster, mm-hmm. which is kind of I don't know, kind of strange if you're listening to accents right, and right. all that sort of thing and the dramatic pauses and all that. Um, but I think he re- he likes to read it. He just goes, he, he said he just like skims it a tiny bit, just kind of get the feel, and then he reads it for the first time, recording, so that you're hearing it the way you would read it oh, for the first time. So not yeah, not practiced. Mm. Yeah, and I think other different narrators do different things, but that's the way the way he does it. Probably saves a little bit of time as well rather than reading a whole thing and then going back but uh but yeah i try to give him the acronyms you know so it's not uh you see nods capitalized if oh, you like how to military. do, how to yeah, do them. you say nods but it's really nods you know things mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. instead of jsoc it'd be jsoc right. like that that sort of a sort of a thing so yeah there's always those those types of things come up as well but it's tough i mean that's that's serious business being a narrator reading all these books that's a lot of hours in a room by yourself just reading you know but more pa- I mean, he does a great job. So yeah, well, it's I, good. More than happy that uh, to have him doing it rather than than me. I, I like how you don't uh, disparage. You don't like to disparage the people you work with. <laughs> God, I haven't had the cause really yet. <laughs> it's 
Probably some really nice guys. I'm gonna pick up on that, man. <laughs> is it different around here? Oh, yeah, like, a dude, different kind Phil, of operation around here. I'll be like, man, Phil just does a phenomenal job. Um, Hayden calls just the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect amount. Hey, yes. I want to go back farther than yes, I, yes. I do want to get to your mom being a librarian, yes. but I want to go That's back even starts. farther than that. Uh, we took a little walk last night. We did. Your uh, your grandfather was killed off Okinawa in World War II. Yep, oh. yep, 1945. Never met uh, his kid. Never met, uh, never met my dad. So we grew up, uh, he grew up with the same things that I grew up with from my grandfather, which were those photos of him with his plane. He flew the Corsair, which is a oh, cool. plane that had the gold wings that you'd fold up like that, put on aircraft carriers. Um, and there was a show in the late 70s, and I caught it in syndication with my dad in the early 80s called Black Sheep Squadron, based oh, off uh, yeah. Pappy Boynton. Had uh, Robert Conrad playing yeah. Pappy Boynton. I think I got a lot of my leadership traits from that show. He was just uh, a drinker <laughs> and a fighter, and it was awesome. I loved it. I thought that's you know, that's, notebook. yeah, it was perfect. Drinking, uh, yeah, fighting. exactly. That's how you settle things. You settle it with your fists outside and you go out and then uh, shoot down a bunch of Japanese zeros and have a few beers. And uh, I was like, that's awesome, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, but I knew it was just kind of in my blood to, um, Joined the military, follow his footsteps into the military. I had those those photos. I had his his Marine aviator wings. I had uh, the silk maps they used to give aviators back then because if you hit the water with a paper map, it would you know disintegrate in the water. But I did, I silk maps, that. yeah, these beautiful. I mean, they're beautiful maps. Um, I have them framed now. But uh, so I had all those those things, his medals, and uh, that's the only touch point. That and this show, Black Sheep Squadron, uh, were the only touch points because you couldn't get online back then and go to the Facebook group from that squadron and try to meet your dad. All these years later, like he had no t- touch points with anybody from his dad's squadron, nothing like that. So, what was it that you took? What was it that you took your family to? To show him your grandfather's name. Yeah, so it's the uh, the MIA wall because they never found found his body. Oh, so that's he's, uh, okay. That's, what, that's what you mentioned. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. That makes sense. So okay. there's a uh, Punchbowl National Cemetery of the Pacific is overlooks. Uh, it's Punchbowl Crater overlooks Honolulu. Yep, my dad took me there when I was a kid. Uh, oh, it's it's yeah. so powerful, so powerful. Like going to, to national cemeteries, no matter which one, is uh, very important for for kids especially. And that's was middle school, high school years, just to appreciate and kind of see, have a uh, kind of a, a have a visceral reaction to seeing those headstones, seeing those those stones in the ground, seeing those names on the wall, uh, so you realize what was sacrificed so that we could have these freedoms and options and opportunities that we have. So maybe before we make a snap judgment on something based off somebody's tweet, maybe take a breath, research it a little more, and then make that decision. So it's um, I think it's important to take take kids there. So that's what we, we did with our youngest, who's 12, brought him up there this past week and showed him his grandfather's name up there on that MIA wall. Is that MIA wall... It, it, it's it's massive powerful. numbers, massive numbers, and it's all uh, it, it, they they works their way up this slope of the crater, and it's just wall after wall after wall after wall that leads to the top. And at the top, there's a statue and a uh, chapel, and then there's the history of World War II on these beautiful murals that spell it all out, all the battles in order up there. So you can walk through the history of World War II in the Pacific, and then you can turn around and look out and just see all those walls with all those names of the bodies that were never recovered. And then you see all the grass where they have all the people that were buried for the bodies that were recovered. So it's a pretty powerful place. So if yeah. you're like, like with your grandfather, they don't then, he's on the MIA, but there's no tombstone. There's right. no tombstone marker. Right. Right. They have, when they do recover the bodies, because we, we're actively still out there looking for bodies from uh, multiple past conflicts. Uh, and so when they do find the remains, then they make up, put a mark, um, and they have this star that goes next to the name that, uh, that lets you know that, hey, this body's now been recovered. And there's a lot more now than there were when I was a kid up there. You can definitely tell. But um, 
Yeah, something that's something I always wanted to do in the military that I never got to do because we got so busy after after nine eleven was be part of that um, MIA recovery uh, group that would go out. You go out to, to Vietnam. You'd really go out to a bunch of different places and look for the remains of these uh, the, in Vietnam. A lot of pilots, mm-hmm. um, but people that were were not recovered. So it's a uh, it's a large operation. It used to be headquartered in Hawaii. I'm not sure where it's headquartered now. So now we'll get to your mom. Yes, librarian. Who, who, so, who did, where, where was she a librarian? So uh, uh, multiple different different libraries growing up. But uh, so when I wanted to let her know I wanted to be a SEAL, so I found out what SEALs were from my dad watching these war movies. So Did he call them Frogmen? So he did. That's that was only because <laughs> it was the name of the movie. So <laughs> we'd be watching uh, football. So football was, was big on Sundays in our household. Um, but I wasn't really interested in football because even back then at age five, six, seven, uh, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to join the military. So it, there was those few channels back then. There's CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, and then there's the outlier. And that outlier channel always had a war movie on on Sundays. So we'd be watching football, and when the commercial came on, my dad would look at his watch and say, go, and I was remote control back in those days. So I'd run up, and I'd switch it to that outlier channel, that fourth channel, and there was always a war movie on. So I'd watch that, and he'd be looking at his watch for either two or two and a half minutes, and then say, turn it back, and I'd turn it back. (laughs) Then we'd continue watching football, and I'd just kind of wait till the next commercial. Um, Wonder wonder what's happening uh, in your movie. (laughs) Exactly. So I had a lot of gaps. When you tune back in, one of the guys just isn't there anymore. Yeah, just gone. Gone, yeah. Yep. And uh, one like, of those that can't be was, good. Uh, yeah, one of those was the Frogman, and it was showed these guys climbing up over the beach and putting explosives on obstacles and blowing them up. And I asked my dad, "Hey, who are these guys?" And he said, "Those are Frogmen." Name of the oh. movie. Uh, and I said, sort of pestering him all about what frog who Frogmen were, and then he's like, "Change it back, change it back." So back to football, and uh, so I went and asked my mom, uh, and she said, "Well, let's go for a trip." So down to the library, and she took every opportunity to we had when we had questions to take us down to that library and show us how to research and all that sort of thing. So this is early '80s, and you could essentially get through everything written about seals in about an hour, maybe an hour and a half if you're a slow reader. Yeah. Uh, there just wasn't that much, and then even there was more written about Army Special Forces. Back Back then, typically about Vietnam, but you'd still you can get through that in a couple hours too. So you could potentially find the end of the internet in the library back then as a kid. But then I started reading those same types of books that my parents were reading. So it's let's say fifth grade is when Hunt for Red October comes out, mm-hmm. and by sixth grade for sure when I'm eleven, that's when I start for sure reading all the same kind of uh, thrillers that I still read. Today, so I'm reading books by David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, Louis L'Amour, Stephen Hunter, and back then, all these guys. And if you remember movies and television in the '80s, that protagonist usually had a background in Vietnam, and yeah. he was either a Navy SEAL or Army Special Forces or Marine sniper or CIA paramilitary. And now he's in the '80s, and he's like a private investigator or he's a cop or you whatever. Know, you know who is. follows that though is uh, um, No Country for Old Men. Oh, do they? What is, what is the guy? All in? those guys. So in No Country for Old Men, um, Josh Brolin's character. Yeah. Lou Ellen. Lou Ellen. He did, you know, you don't know, you're not quite sure what, but did uh, something heavy duty in Vietnam. The, the assassin did something you gather really heavy in Vietnam and was, you know, like a, you gather some kind of ultimate badass from Vietnam. And it because it was a eight is about eight the eighties and so it was these guys that were you yeah know, to the timeline worked kind of a skill set that made yeah, sense it was for all the storyline like, kind of like crazy warriors mm-hmm. that were yeah wandering the drug lands of the 
Texas-Mexico border. Yep. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, I, I never really thought about that formula, yeah. but when you mentioned yeah. that, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were all they all had backgrounds like that. And so that's the background I wanted in real life one day. So I figure, hey, if I'm reading about this uh, SEAL in a book by David Morrell, or I'm reading about this um, Air Force pararescue guy in a book by so-and-so, well, they must have done their research somehow. They must have connections in there somehow. So as a kid, to age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, I'm just having such a good time in the pages of these novels. Uh, I know that after my time in the military, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write these yeah, kind but, of but, books. Okay, Aww. let's say, here's, here's what I don't get, though. If someone had said, you will not, like, like God says, you cannot be a writer, ever. Would you have then not gone in the military? I would have probably said, why? <laughs> what a, and he said, somebody did it. He said, cause. Somebody, cause, <laughs> like, like your parents, cause I said so. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever. Like, yeah. would you have not done it? Um, I've never thought big, about that hypothetical before. That's a pretty before. big research stint. And that's a high risk research stint. <laughs> I didn't realize how high risk it was. A lot it of writers like, I spent six months walking, yeah. you know, you're like, right. I spent 10 years in urban combat <laughs> yeah. so I could be a writer. Yeah, so People it's be all... like that doesn't sound. <laughs> well, the, that's not a very practical. I, I thought of them. I thought of uh, the seal side and the writing side is totally distinctly different. Okay. Um, I didn't think of one leading to the other. I just knew that hey, if I want to do these two things with my life, um, because of <laughs> time and aging, uh, you have to do the military side first. So <laughs> yeah, that makes that's, sense. Yeah, there's no really like what am I going to do first? It's like no, you're gonna you have to do this first. Um, but I was reading all those guys and then. I found Joseph Campbell through Hero with a Thousand Faces and a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyers on PBS in 1988 called The Power of Myth. And then they had some books that came out based on that called The Power of Myth as well. Um, and I saw that with my mom. She introduced me to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talked about how his uh, hero's journey was an inspiration for George Lucas and Star Wars. And of course, as a kid of the 80s, you know, that really stood out to me. So I started applying that hero's journey and Joseph Campbell's uh, thoughts and vision and philosophy to books I'd read, to movies I'd see, TV shows I'd see. And uh, even though I didn't think of it specifically in these terms, I just thought, oh, like, hey, that movie didn't work because of that, that, that hero missed a part of that journey. Um, it didn't really take well, you what on is this. going in for, for, for James Reese, mm -hmm. what is going into the cave? Ah, uh, so there's distinct language that I'll use in the book, uh, even if it's just a cabin or it's uh, something and I'll put cavern-like something. So uh -huh. I'll describe something, I'll throw that in there, cave-like, cavern-like, something like that, dark. Uh, so I'll describe a cave even though I don't use those words um, because I'm thinking about that journey and he's getting some sort of information in there. Uh, also, you go into a cave repeatedly. Uh, there's, there'll be one, I probably do, but there's one distinct part of each book that I think of as I'm writing that is his time to change a little bit, learn something a little you. bit, emerge a little different so that he can solve this problem, usually very aggressively and violently in uh, in my yeah. novels. But well, but, yeah, with like, uh, so you think a bunch of them where Luke Skywalker, when he has to go to that little, he that little swampy, Dagobah, little, yeah, yeah, he goes that little it. swampy island and mm -hmm. hangs out with uh, Yoda. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He you know, comes back, all, leaves mm -hmm. early, but comes yeah. out ready to... That's right. Exactly. That's right. First blood goes into the cave. There's rats all over him. You know, he's throwing those things off there, the cave there. So, uh, so it, it, you'll notice it if you if you read here with a thousand faces and then start watching films that take you on a journey through a protagonist's eyes. Then, uh, then you start noticing 
that some of these elements are uh, are in some are probably your favorite films. It resonates for a reason. Like there's a, a mentor along the way. We have Obi Wan Kenobi. We have we have Yoda. We have someone that uh, helps train that's older and wiser that passes along some training or some information along the way as well. So yeah. there's that uh, there's that person in uh, in books and movies and television and it's just uh, it's a very natural way to tell a story because our first stories are around the campfire and they're about the hunt and they're about warfare because you're passing down lessons from both the hunt and combat to that next generation through a story that you can remember. Mm -hmm. And why uh, doesn't that get boring? It is used over and over and over again. Yeah. It, like well, every, they would say, cause it's in your, they would say, cause it's, it's like already, it's in your DNA. It's already wired into your brain. Yeah. I love it. Every time, every single boxing movie, yeah. every single one. It's like, ah, I'm not going to train that kid. <laughs> exactly. He's, yeah, he's, he ain't going what it takes. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Then you get the montage That's and you, you come out stronger and wiser and get yep. in that ring and get it done. Not um, only am I going to prove it to you, I'm going to prove it to all of them. That's right. Yeah, but, that's you know, right. there's but there's other things that are wired into he, the India, the human head. Like, if you look globally, if you look at world religion, the idea that a bad flood came and wiped out most everything is a recurring. I mean, it, it, it's in like Native American mythologies. It's from the primary like monotheistic religions. It's, it's just like it's this idea that probably because you're, look, I don't know, you're looking at stuff that doesn't, make, that, that doesn't make sense to you anymore. You find like dinosaur bones, whatever. And you're like, I don't know. Must have been, a, right? Well, all those it different different up. cultures that had never had any interaction with one another, uh, China, Native American uh, philosophies, Christianity, all these different religions and, and different cultures, really, is a better way to put it, had very similar stories, very similar mythologies, very similar heroes' journeys that they would pass on to that next generation. So uh, across cultures that never had any interaction, they had these very similar stories because mm -hmm. um, they're passing on some of those same things. It was about survival. And not only was it about survival, it was about prevailing because if you're just going to survive, that's a, that's a rough way to go. But uh, you need to prevail. That's the goal. You, you like to put elements of hunting in. I do. Is that now? Is that is that psychology too, or is that just because you like hunting? That's because I like hunting, and it's because other people either don't or can't do that, mm -hmm. um, and so it's different. And it's also a way for me to kind of give back uh, to this community, the hunting community, really, because um, someone's going through the airport and they uh, see this thing they think is a spy espionage thriller on the shelf, and they grab it. But what they're really getting is an education in uh, hunting and conservation along the way, because it's woven in. There's hunting in all the stories, but in particular, the second one, True Believer. So it'll be interesting to see how we uh, how we deal with that in uh, uh, the visual adaptation of it. Uh, and then the third one really has uh, is Savage Son, and that's really about the dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. So the inspiration for that was back in sixth grade when I read The Most Dangerous Game oh, yeah, by man. Richard Connell. And even back in sixth grade, I said, one day I'll write a, a novel that pays tribute to this short story. Huh. And it was the one that I wanted to start with. When I when I started writing, I wrote oh, really? down six, seven, eight, nine different ideas, different one-page executive summaries and laid them all out on the table. And Savage Sun was the one I wanted to start with because that's the theme that I wanted to explore. And that's the one I'd been thinking about writing since the sixth grade. But I knew that the characters weren't developed enough to tell that story yet. So 
I had to introduce everyone to these characters in the first book in the terminal list. And then even at the end of that one, I was like, nope, not quite ready yet. I still need to take him now on this journey of redemption because uh, it would be uh, disingenuous to the reader or to the listener to take him after these traumatic events in the first novel and then just drop him into this second in the second one as Savage Son. He had, couldn't do it. And I'm surprised that Simon & Schuster, actually my editor there, didn't ask me to change anything about that second one because it, it, I take him on a pretty long journey. Um, where he learns to live again because he thinks he's dying. And he finds this next mission, this purpose in Africa, in Mozambique, taking his skills from the battlefield and turning those into something positive um, against poachers mm. out in Africa. So he finds this new mission. And of course, that's when the CIA finds him and plucks him back out for a, for a new mission. But uh, that's a long part of the story. And that's probably people that really, of my novels, Savage Son is probably people's favorite. And, uh, and In the Blood, which was the last one, those are the two favorites. But people that like True Believer love True Believer. Love that second one because of the hunting and because it's a slower story, a slower buildup because this guy's damaged and he needs to find that, that a reason to live again. Mm-hmm. And he, he finds that in, in Africa and Mozambique. And most people don't explore Mozambique and, and hunting in, in modern thrillers as well. Uh, most people don't put boots on the ground over there doing their research, which I did. And I didn't even have my deal yet. So I finished my first, my first novel, hadn't sent it to Simon & Schuster yet, got out of the military and knew that I was always going to write two because of the John Grisham story. He wrote A Time to Kill first. And he he couldn't give that book away. And then he writes The Firm, and that thing takes off, and we've had a really? John Grisham novel every year since. Um, but if he like, thought, oh, this one didn't really work, I'm just going to go back to practicing law, like he'd probably just be retiring now. He'd probably be a partner at a law firm and, uh-huh. and just, be, just be getting out, still be thinking about that book that didn't work called The Time to Kill, which I think is his best work, actually, because they republished it after uh, The Firm came out and hit it so big. They went back and, and republished it, and then Matthew McConaughey starred in that movie. But it's fantastic. If you haven't read A Time to Kill, for those listening or watching, that's amazing, amazing book. But so I was always going to write two. So before I'd even sent it to, to Simon and Schuster, before I had an agent or anything, I was on a plane to Africa to, to Mozambique, putting boots on the ground over there. I had lists of questions to ask the professional hunters and the trackers and skinners and everybody else. Um, uh, how do you say things in the different languages over there? What are the different languages that they're speaking over there? Um, of course, looking at the rocks and, and the dirt. How am I going to describe that? And what's the situation like over there with hunting and poaching in China and minerals and exploitation and all the rest of it? So, um, so yeah, I was doing that research while I was over there before I had any sort of a deal. Um, but so you're just, you're just spending money out of pocket. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, as I, I going in, you have to write your occupation on those, uh, those forms. And so it sells, you know, your name and, and all that stuff and it has occupation. And I wrote author even though I didn't have any publishing deal. Or well, anything. the, 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 yeah. uh, the other option would have been probably not so, that helpful. So, so yeah, so, so I wrote that, but I got that from Stephen Pressfield uh, for his books on creativity that he writes, The War of Art, Turning Pro, Authentic Swing. Um, and he said, you know, you're a professional, flip that switch, turn pro and write. Uh-huh. And so I wrote author before I'd met anyone from Simon & Schuster or have, had any, because I always knew I was going to write two. And if both of them didn't work, then I was like, well, I'll think about some fallbacks, but I didn't really want to have to I remember getting to the anything. point where I felt like I could legitimately for occupation put down writer and I loved it, man. Nice. Because for a lot of times I was like, ah, I wrote, probably shouldn't put that down. Ah, so I did it well like, before. I'm still like a tree yeah. surgeon or whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I did it well, well before. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, if you're looking at things professionally as like, oh, professionally you make money at it. Well, yeah, I, I jumped the gun, but I still thought of myself. At first, it was a professional soldier, a special operator, and now not that anymore. Now I'm an author, so I just flipped that switch and uh, became a became a professional author. So before you before you 
became an author, was there like external pressure in the military for you to be like a lifer, stay mm-hmm. in and train people or? Yeah, so there is that, but um, once you, I mean, less so at 20 years, uh, as you're creeping up on 20, that's yeah. kind of like, because hey. if you stay in, a lot of people say you're working for uh, for half pay, essentially, type of a thing. That's Was that? really true. Um, because you could get out and get your retirement, which is, it's not really half, it's way less than half because they don't include your special pays, like your demo pay and your jump pay and your combat pay and all that sort of thing. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not it doesn't really work out that way, but I understand what people mean when they say it. Um, but no, I was twenty was good. It was a good run. Yeah. If I stayed in, it was uh, I'd done everything that I wanted to do mm-hmm. at that point. And if I stayed in, it would be staff job and then come back as a commanding officer at some point, which sounds really uh, impressive if you say you're a commanding officer or something. But in today's day and age, as a commanding officer, you're really back in a tactical operations center when the guys are out there kicking in the doors, doing the job that you really came in to do. And it's good you need good people to do that, right. but that just wasn't. My my, yep. my thing. Um, I was there for to be a tactical level leader on the mm-hmm. battlefield, and that time was essentially done. So it was time to flip that switch and take care of my family. And we have uh, uh, three kids, and one of them has some severe special needs. So that was like they needed me, and right. so it was time to it was time to move on. It was very clear to me that it was time to get out, and it was also very clear to me uh, what I needed to do next. And there were you never had, and like then or now, any interest in nonfiction. It was always. Funny you should ask, um, but not in the same way that uh, most people think of nonfiction from someone coming out of the military. So I have a not from my first nonfiction book comes out in fall of 2024, so about a year and a half. Yep. And writing with a historian, James Scott, he's written five books, most of them on World War II. Amazing guy. And uh, for my plan was always to write nonfiction on terrorist events. Mm. So this first one is about the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. Yep. And so there hasn't really been the, like the seminal work. On that yet, and there's been some. Yeah, when, when you said it to me last night, I was like, "That's kind of genius, man." Because there's like nothing about. I yeah. shouldn't say nothing, there's but it's, just, things, it's not it's revisited not, yeah. as commonly as other right seminal moments exactly. you know, in, in military history. Exactly, or, and I have those. I mean, I remember distinctly uh, some of my first memories of the 1979 hostage crisis, and I remember going to church yeah. and, uh, and and praying for those people over there. I remember Walter Cronkite counting down the days that they'd been held hostage over there. I remember wondering why we hadn't gone and rescued them yet. Um, so I, so I, that, some of my earliest memories are those black and white photos of the people from the embassy with their, with, uh, uh, their, their eyes um, you know, taped, taped mm-hmm. over and blindfolded and all that. Um, but yeah, it made sense when I'm looking at all those events that were so impactful during the 80s, uh, 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. And today actually is the anniversary of the embassy bombing in April of 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how we're, we're looking into that first and then everything that leads up to the October bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. Um, but I'm thinking about TWA 847. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Achille Laurel. I'm thinking of Pan M 103. Uh, I'm thinking of all these different uh, attacks in Europe, at, uh, whether it's a cafe or a, a nightclub or whatever it might be in airports, multiple airports. Um, which one to start with? And the 1983 barracks bombing was so significant because it showed Hezbollah in particular that terrorism worked. And everyone else that was watching that isn't Hezbollah, that, hey, terrorism works. What did they want? They wanted us to leave Beirut. What did we do? We talked tough for a couple months afterward, and then we left more quietly in early 84. So there's the the geopolitical aspect of it that continues to shadow our foreign policy today. So there's a lot to explore there. And then there's recently declassified documents about what was going on in the White House, um, who was advocating for Marines to go ashore, who was advocating that they should stay on an amphib ship uh, uh, offshore, and how that decision got made. 
made. And so we get to explore all that in detail, interview survivors, interview people that came to identify the bodies, which is uh, the same group that identified the bodies at Jonestown. Mm. Um, and so it's, uh, oh, it, there's shit, lots really? of, lots to unpack there. So that'll be the, that'll be the first one. So that was a very long way to answer that nonfiction question. Yeah. So yeah, nonfiction's okay. coming in, uh, in fall of 2024. How do you, how do you reconcile, um, that you spent so many years, uh, as a federal employee in a chain of command that flowed down from from the, the commander-in-chief, mm-hmm. so like a, a democratically elected individual, and it flows down through all this stuff to the point where you and your guys are yeah. have enough faith in that system where you're not only putting your lives at risk, but your colleagues and friends of yours are dying, okay? Mm-hmm. So you have this, you've, you've completely bought into or are supportive of this, and then your work has like a um, conspiratorial tone, you know, that, that not everything from up above is to be trusted. Oh, yeah. Is that, did you, did you feel that way? Or is that like, is that the writer? Well, uh, I certainly feel that way now. The government has not done a very good job of showing us as citizens that uh, they can be trusted. Uh, mm-hmm. Over time, and I'm not just talking about recent history; it's throughout throughout our history, and throughout history in general. Um, so I thought about it, but not so much that would overshadow what my job was, which is to accomplish this mission and bring my guys home. Um, but you certainly think about it when you're over there, let's say Iraq, and you're there in 2004, and then you come back in 2005, a year later, and you're like, "Wow, things have gotten a lot worse here." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nothing is better than when I left. Then you come back and they're still there in 2006 and looking around like this continues to get worse. Uh, we continue to do the same things. And if you're a student of history and you're a student of Vietnam uh, and you're wondering what uh, what lessons we took from that that we're applying to this, or if you're in Afghanistan, like uh, in the early days, which I thought were the late days in 2003, I thought, oh, I'm going to miss this thing. Um, and that didn't end up being the case. But uh, what lessons did we take from the Soviets? Did we take the right ones? We have 1979 to 89. And we can look at all these, uh, everything that happened there, and we can draw lessons and we can apply them, hopefully, as wisdom. And we neglected to do that. Or we took the wrong lessons. I think we took the wrong lessons. Um, we didn't even have to go back to the three British incursions. We didn't have to go back to um, to Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. Like There was, was more like recent Roger, history. Who is it like? Kipling, yeah, whatever he's always talking yeah, about. Yeah, Everything you know about Afghanistan the is poem, from yeah. the Kubla Khan. There's a, yeah, his great, great poem that was on the wall of one of our CIA houses over there. Um, and uh, I have a picture of it that I posted on on social. And I don't call out the the quote. I, people, some people will. Uh, I'm always curious who's going to notice the quote in the background written on the on the wall. But uh, yeah, it, we had these lessons. We had recent history we could have looked at. And we neglected to do that and ended up being there for, for 20 years and then leaving in the, the way that we did. Um, and then we have just, was it just last week, we have officials, uh, appointed officials, uh, talking about, oh, it was a, it's a huge success the way we left Afghanistan. And then you can juxtapose that with the photos of people hanging off jets and babies getting thrown over the walls and skewered in barbed wire. And okay, that's your death. That doesn't quite look like. So you had 20 years to prepare for this, guys, no. 20 years. And this is your only job. And this is what you get. This is the best you can do. But there's so a I like to hold them accountable in the pages of my novels because yeah, we don't hold them accountable between, really. There's a difference between being like inept. Oh, there's ineptitude. And there's, but there's ineptitude, but then there's malintent. Yeah. 
I think a lot of ineptitude is the way uh, is if you have to blame something because there's hasn't been accountability really since Vietnam since well before Vietnam um, World War II there was a lot of accountability like George, people know George Marshall for the Marshall Plan you think oh rebuilding Europe but really what George Marshall did in the lead up to World War II and during World War II was hold leaders accountable and remove them he'd give them a, one chance maybe two not a third out of the way, put someone in there that can get this job done. And all those names that we know from Nimitz to MacArthur to Patton, all those guys got there because someone in front of them failed and they were held accountable, they were removed, and we put somebody else in place to see if they could do it. Back to the Civil War, Lincoln replaced general after general after general after general until he got to Grant. Um, then somehow things start to change. Maybe it's in Korea, but for sure by Vietnam. Now we have failure on the battlefield and what happens? Well, they are not held accountable. They get out, they sit on boards of, of these different companies, and that has been pervasive all the way mm. through today. Mm. There's a great book called The Afghanistan Papers by Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post, who um, got these interviews uh, through for two Freedom of Information Act lawsuits um, from the, I think, Department of Defense. But it was these officers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan being interviewed in a way that they thought was going to remain classified. And then it juxtaposes what they said in those interviews with what they said in front of Congress. So essentially to the American people, to their troops, to our elected representatives, and it's 180 out. And there was one guy, I think it's 2009, one general or admiral that says something. It's not even that bad. And he's like, hey, things aren't really going as well over, uh, over there as, uh, as we think, if you've been led to believe. That's about as, as, uh, as bad as, as it got. And he was quietly removed. A few months later, mm. yeah. So it's it's uh, that non-accountability that is really, I think, killing us as a nation. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys, next to my scatter gun, is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, I'll like instinctively pull up bubbly doug's place on on x and i'll look at the topography and i'll be like oh that sucker must be over in that little opening over there waypoints also and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys on x hunt has a special offer for you too Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you 
to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called The Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I got a friend that spent a lot of years fighting in Afghanistan, and he had mentioned that before he went there, his some commanding officer uh, had wanted to have a lecturer come to talk about Afghan history. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't condoned. And he always admired this officer because they paid for the speaker out of their own pocket and flew the speaker out yeah. to come. And they basically came in 10 years in advance. He said, looking back, they came and told us what would happen. Yeah, no. I mean, there's that. And this was a this was an uncondoned perspective, but it was a, it was it was an Afghan. Mm-hmm. It was in the U.S. and they were I can't remember they were professors somewhere. And he said, looking back, they came and basically said, "Here's what will happen ten years from now." And yeah. um and when 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 we pulled out and Kabul fell, uh, I texted to say like, "Man, this got to be emotional for you or in some way." And he just said. I've for a long time I just haven't been able to see any other outcome. There's nothing we've done on like assessments that would suggest otherwise. To act like this is a surprise is bullshit. Yeah. Was his take his take on it. And that's someone who spent a lot of years there. Yeah. No, we had all those years to study, all those years to prepare. Uh, you could see from the spring into the summer, province by province falling. And uh, it's, yeah, it's really remarkable, the ineptitude amongst our senior level leaders that allowed them to put these 18, 19, 20, 22-year-old kids at this gate at Kabul Airport in a tactically disadvantageous position when we held the tactically advantageous position for 20 years at Bagram. And it's just, for those who have been there, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about, the standoff distances and everything else involved in securing an area or an airport in this case. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's criminal. And yet 
No one's held accountable. No one was, uh, no one was even quietly moved aside at those senior levels. They just continue to do their job and they'll retire with a full pension and then sit on a board, go to a couple meetings a year for some of these defense contracting companies and, and uh, the machine rolls on, unfortunately. This is so far removed from anything to do with hunting and fishing and whatnot. But <laughs> well, there's a lot of parallels, but, actually. But, but between, in high, uh, no, I, don't, I don't even care. Yeah. In hindsight, okay, with with the gift of hindsight, do you have any idea of what, um, when and what should have been done in Afghanistan? Uh, overall? Yeah. I mean, you can go back to December of 2021. Sure, that's what I mean. Yeah. And when I talk about those lessons that we learned from the Soviets, the, I think our senior level leaders took, hey, we need a small footprint there. The Soviets went in with too many people, too many targets, too heavy handed. Uh, and it ended up being their, their Vietnam is what they, you know, like to, they like to term it uh, for 10 years. I think they maybe found a and, new one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They might have found a new one. We'll see. Yeah. They got, um, they got nine years to see if that's the yeah, case or not. And, yeah. And they, yeah, it's, uh, and they haven't even started really, I don't think, as far Throw, throwing bodies at that problem but uh but not if you look at history yeah at their previous commitments right. and manpower exactly yeah exactly uh but yeah december 2021 multiple uh, um, requests from guys on the ground uh requesting either rangers or 10th mountain division marines somebody come in block off these passes into pakistan we have osama bin laden right here in uh in these mountains uh all those requests denied and uh, slips away, and we get the next 20 years um, for whatever reason. So, so there, there's one. So there's there's one. Uh, but then now that you're in this thing, now what do you do? And now why are we there? And then, well, we get distracted by Iraq, and all those resources that were focused on Afghanistan shift over to Iraq in 2003. And you could see it on the ground in Afghanistan. You could see all these assets kind of pick up and move. Oh, really? And all these people that were doing all these jobs before – just aren't there anymore. And it falls just to a few people to keep things kind of, keep things moving, keep these outstations supplied, uh, keep this air overhead in case people need it. Um, so yeah, there are so many lessons that we can take and apply going forward. And that's what we're not so good at as a country uh -huh. is taking those lessons and applying them going forward as wisdom. Cause we're looking at four year election cycles, eight year election cycles for the real deep thinkers among us, but we're really not honoring all those people that either died or came home damaged from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the way we can honor them is by taking those lessons and applying them going forward. So this next generation, so these next, these kids don't have to do the same things or don't have to suffer through another 20 year war because of the ineptitude of senior level leadership, but really in the military, as long as you don't pop positive on a piss test, uh, as long as you don't get arrested too many times or get arrested for like domestic violence or something like that, you're going to pretty much rise to the top if you just remain quiet and you're going to see people that are kind of those, those go-getters, those hard chargers. A lot of those people get to a certain level and move on out, um, either because they just want to do something in the private sector or they, uh, they're kind of disenfranchised by what they, what they see at senior level leaders or see their path ahead. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to go work for that guy. I'm out. Um, so really, these, it's not the best and the brightest that are, in my experience, I'm sure there are exceptions for those that are listening. Yes, there are exceptions. But for the most part, if you just kind of keep your nose clean and stay out of trouble, you can rise up in any, in, in government service in general. Do you, uh, I don't mean to keep beating this one into the ground, but do you think that uh, do you think that that Afghanistan should have just been um, to focus on Al Qaeda and, and just that and have that be it? Yeah, we definitely did not understand that uh, Al Qaeda was a guest. They were guests of the Taliban. Mm. And over there, if you were the guest of someone, well, guess what? That person or that tribe is now uh, obligated 
to defend you. Um, and we stepped right into that. And so we made enemies of the Taliban who, yeah, I mean, they're not, you know, not the great. They're just destroying these, the Buddha statues earlier on. And they, you know, obviously they weren't they're, in New York city. They're not, uh, well, maybe now it's a little closer yeah. you know, from what I've seen on the news and videos I'm seeing, but, uh, uh, we definitely made an enemy of someone. Uh, the accidental gorilla is a good way mm. to put it. David Kukulon has a great book called the accidental gorilla. And, uh, we made a lot. It's, it's also called, uh, insurgent math. So you go in and kill somebody and guess what? His kid sees you do that. And, but what, what's that kid going to do? Uh, well, he's probably going to join the Taliban or whatever organization that's going to allow him to now also honor his tribe uh, by getting revenge because that's part of the culture as well, uh, deeply embedded. Uh, it's deeply embedded in a lot of cultures, not just, uh, not just Afghan, not just Taliban. But we made a lot of enemies for sure uh, in the, in 20 years, we had ample opportunity yeah. to do that. Um, so if we'd gone in with, uh, taking a little more lessons from the Soviets and, uh, and realized that if we went in heavy handed, did the job and got out, we would have accomplished that goal. But for some reason we stayed. And then for some reason we got out the way we did. So you're not a big nation building guy. No, expeditionary counterinsurgency is, uh, very difficult. So if you have a counterinsurgency campaign, uh, on your own soil, it's different than doing it overseas, doing it on someone else's turf, yeah. which can prove to be, uh, there are a couple instances of long-term commitments uh, playing out, uh, like Malaya, places like that, but that's a long-term commitment uh, with a cohesive strategy, not shifting here and there, um, and not rewarding people for failure, which is uh, what we do. People keep failing up in our system. Um. You mentioned me last night that when you got, when you finally got done with the military, you were looking for, I'm sorry, if, I don't think this would be private. You were looking for physical and, um, physical psych and psychological separation. Psychological from the separation. Yeah. I just saw so many, during my last uh, couple of years in, I was at BUDS. So I was at our SEAL training command. So I wasn't taking guys down range anymore. And I had all this leave built up from all these, all these years that I wasn't really taking leave because I was so focused on being the best leader operator I possibly could. I was so focused. And, and I think being honest with my wife about that, realizing that, hey, the team is coming first. Um, and that's just how it has to be because you're responsible for those guys' lives downrange. Uh, that's what you owe it to them, their families, uh, the country, the mission, the team. Uh, that's just how it's going to be. Eventually, when we're out, it'll it'll switch back. So when I got to Bud's and I wasn't taking guys downrange anymore, I could kind of take a breath and look around. I realized that I was going to get out. The pendulum started to, to swing back because Bud's is a machine and it's push-ups, it's sit-ups, it's pull-ups, it's runs, it's swims, it's... It's what it has been for uh, a long time. Oh, and, we know all about that because we have a thing now and then where you have to do 100 push-ups in a day. Oh, my goodness. Called, you guys do know all about that. You got, are you guys it's okay? The, it's called how, the Hundo Club. How many guys have you lost? It's called the Hundo Club. <laughs> well, yeah. it kind of comes and goes. <laughs> you know. guys gonna, it comes yeah. and goes like, yeah. we'll, we'll, 80% we'll, quit? We, we'll, we'll have it be that we're going to have the Hundo Club every day, but it winds up being like, yeah. Now and then we'll do a hundo club. Nice. I, so, yeah, I completely so. understand now, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, um, you get it. I get you it get now, it. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I got to see people getting out. And in my role as the operations officer, which is like a COO of a company, so you're kind of running day-to-day -day operations. But at Bud's, they're really running themselves because you have a, an officer and a master chief or a senior chief in every phase of training. 
and they've got it. Like they don't, they, they've got it. So you kind of have some, some time. And, uh, I saw people get out of the military and have a hard time leaving it behind because you have this mission. You're so dedicated to it. Your best friends are a part of it. When you're downrange, they're to your right and your left, and you're not worried about paying bills or leaky faucets or anything like that. You're solely focused on building target packages and going and executing those missions. Um, then you come home and you transition out and you think maybe you can recreate that in the private sector or something mm. similar. And for some reason, it's a surprise that you can't. And either you try to get back in or you're calling me as the operations officer saying, hey, can I bring my new boss by for a tour? And I was always like, absolutely, you know, for sure. Even when I got told no by senior level leadership, uh, I was always like, yeah, just come by when at this time because I know that guy's going to be gone and, uh, you know, we'll get this get this done for you. Because um, I was always trying to hook up good guys um, in, uh, in the teams or, or out. But uh, point being, they point couldn't being, stay away. It was hard. It was hard for a lot of people to stay away. Uh, all these foundation events that you have to support military families, you know, continuing to go to those, going to the same grocery stores, the same bars, dropping your kids off at the same schools where you're seeing uh, either somebody that was on your team before dropping their kid off because they happen to be at a shore duty, or you see uh, the wife dropping the kid off and wondering where the husband's downrange in Iraq or Afghanistan and you feeling guilty about not being there. So I saw that. Uh, for those couple of years that I was at Bud's uh, at the end of my time in the military and decided that, okay, it's, uh, it would probably be healthy to make this uh, physical and psychological break and head up to Park City, Utah, raise our kids in a ski town. And uh, that was a good decision for yeah, us. Yeah, because talking about that, uh, you know, you're like your boy likes to ski, your, yep. da your daughter likes to hunt. I mean, yep. do you at night feel like you need to at the end of the day be like, you know, I want to remind you that there are, are, horrible things happen to people around this world or are you like that that the point of this is that that's not part of everyday life no i think about it and yeah. we uh talk about it and i see that sun setting over the mountains and i think that it's going down here but it's coming up somewhere else and uh -huh. that somewhere else may have a group of special operators or caa paramilitary guys uh just coming back from a mission or getting ready to go do some sort of a daylight op somewhere they're uh fixing gear from the night before they're loading magazines they're treating wounded they're gassing up vehicles or whatever they're doing um that we'll never hear about unless something goes wrong and then we'll hear about it in the news but if, if it goes uh well enough that no one dies we're probably not going to hear about it. Um, so I think about that. I think about that every day. Um, but, uh, but I don't dwell on it. I appreciate that they're out there doing that job so that I can be back here doing what I love, which is, which is writing. But, uh, but I never forget it. I never forget they're out there. Did you get to it with writing? Uh, did you also one day be like, okay, because you knew you're going to, you knew you wanted to write since you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Did you one day be like, okay, now I, be, now it begins. Oh Yeah. Really? Yeah, you just sat down. Not a typewriter. Yep, but. yep. Sat down my computer. It'd be cool. Right if there's a movie, it'll be a typewriter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I collect old typewriters now. Uh, actually, at Hemingway, somebody gifted it to me um, in early 2020. Yeah, he wrote a movable feast on it. Uh, published after after he died. But um, but yeah, so I have that that typewriter. Really? A bunch of his stuff went up for sale. Uh, yeah, the guy that. Um, started uh newman zone with paul newman yeah. also was part of that 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 crowd and had had purchased this typewriter for hemingway uh to write a movable feast on in in new york actually and uh all his this stuff went up for sale when he passed away and that was early 2020 and a, a fan reached out and said that they wanted me to have it so Whoa. hemingway's typewriter yeah wow. but i work i don't work i typed one thing on it i wrote one hemingway quote and i uh, put it on there and uh and i write everything on um on uh on my MacBook. Did, but, Corinne, uh, do you think I should put him in his place and tell him about how we have that knife that was used to get the weights out of the walleye at the walleye cheating scandal? 
Oh, wow. Sure, I, I, I feel like this is a story that's been told in this podcast before. I think Hemingway's typewriter wins the cake. Yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure the two compare. But you but, think well. that's cool. <laughs> but yes, I did. I sat down, uh, looked around after I was at, at Bud's and was like, okay, my family needs me. Uh, son needs me. It's time to make this. I'm uh-huh. not going to stay in. I'm not going to go through this uh, this next 10 years yeah. to essentially come back as a commanding officer somewhere. Uh, it's time to time to get out. It was a good run. Started enlisted. Did all the things I wanted to do. Became an officer. Uh, Got out as a troop commander at the end of uh, when we got out of Iraq in 2011, and now got home, looked around, realized that was a good run. Time to time to get out. Did your wife think you were nuts? No, she'd be like, "Now I will become a famous writer." <laughs> well, that, no, we've known each other since we were 18, and uh, um, so the whole time I've wanted to be a SEAL and an author, and so she's seen all these books travel with us uh, from the days that I was 18. I still had books all over the place, and I still have those books. Um, so she's been she's she's used to it, uh, and she just knows that yeah, it was, this was my plan. So I don't, she's not uh, she's not surprised by it. When when it was time to write, like before that, like leading up to that point. Had you done anything to train yourself or school yourself in writing, or you were just like, "I'm gonna write a damn book"? Yeah, all that reading that I did, just, was, but uh, no was like formal. You didn't take any like didn't take a class writing. or anything yeah. like that. I read uh, "On Writing" by Stephen King, the successful novelist by David Morrell, um, all the Stephen Hunter books that were out at the time on creativity. Uh, there's more of them out now. There's maybe three or four of them out then. There's probably seven of them out now. Um, so I read those, mm-hmm. and then I decided, okay, that's enough because today you can essentially study how to do something forever. You can take yeah. multiple online classes, yeah. multiple master classes. You can just essentially research until the end of time on the internet. Uh, eventually, if you want to get something done, you have to execute. So, Oh, some um, people, that's just what they do. Is- yeah. And that's fine. And that's fine. Yeah. But I was ready to write. Um, but more so, and, and on writing for people that have read it, it's more an autobiography than a how-to book uh, by Stephen King. But it's what I love reading autobiographies by authors. And typically they write them later later in life. Uh, there's a few more of them out now that weren't out at the time mm-hmm. that I started writing. If they had been, I would have read those as well. But uh, yeah, it's read those. But luckily I had that foundation already built and then sat down and wrote. But really I started with the title. And this is how it's been for every book thus far. Uh, I like to have the title right out of the gate, so I'm not worried. I'm not wasting bandwidth, worried about coming up with a good title. So even if it's a working title, I like to have that down. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if it's going to change eventually, I like to have that, not just book six, but a title. Um, A theme that's going to guide the writing process. So each book has a distinctive theme that's just a sentence. And I got that from Stephen Pressfield, a misinterpretation of something that Stephen Pressfield said on Rogan. But I'm glad that I misinterpreted it. Um, (laughs) And uh, I I interpreted it as he would take a yellow sticky next to his typewriter and write a one-word theme. So I was like, ah, wonderful. Uh, Revenge. And then I changed that to Revenge Without Constraint. I cheated a little bit. What did he mean? Um, he was telling a story about a playwright in New York who would write a few sentences about a theme that would guide his writing process. Oh. And somehow in so my head. in your head. Yeah. yeah it was one word. In one word. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, revenge. doesn't hurt to be concise, no, right? No, no. Now I have the same thing, but it's, uh, it's a little more wordy, not, not much, but it's definitely not more than a sentence. Uh, so, so start with, with that and then uh, one page executive summary. Um, and I write that out and then I ask myself two questions. I say, would is this worth a year of my life or a year and a half 
of my life? And if it's yes, then I ask another question. I say, if someone were to read this, like walking through airport, going into Hudson News, pulling the book off and reading the back or the, the flap jacket, uh, would they be willing to invest time that they're never going to get back in this story? Right. And if the answer to both of those is yes, then boom, um, I'm all in. And then I take that, turn that into an outline, and then take that outline, turn it into a narrative. But what I don't do is get stuck on the outline because if I get to a place in that outline where I'm like, oh, how is he ever going to get out of this? Uh, is anyone ever going to believe this? Uh, oh, this is going to be terrible. I'm never going to figure this out. If I get to, to that, I just put a bunch of X's and go around it and I keep writing, knowing that I have a year and a half mm -hmm. to figure this out. Uh, and on the battlefield, you had seconds to make right. decisions. Now uh, I have a year. A year and a half. On that first out. book, so were, were you working completely solo or did you have an editor yeah. or anyone you Yeah, were? so nobody yet. I sent it to 20 people or so, maybe 25 even, maybe 27, maybe 30 um, at, when it was done. When I thought I got it to the place where I got it to being the best that I could get it. Mm -hmm. And I told myself, hey, if one person says, comes back and says, hey, I really didn't like this part. This part didn't make sense. You need to do this. I would discount it. Two, three... Yeah, discount those two. But if it was like five, six, seven of those 25 or 30 people were like, you should think about writing this part again, or I didn't really understand this, uh, then I'd be like, yeah. okay, roger that. Um, but now I sent it to four people ahead of time. Um, they were part of that original original group, but now that's four. And I sent it to them before I sent it to my editor. And uh, they give me different things back. And they're, it's all super valuable. And they're they're amazing. I thank them and the acknowledgments of my books. And then uh, I make those make those changes or I discard them um, and then send it to my editor. And so they're, so she's getting the best product that me and a little bit of feedback from like a fan base. Mm -hmm. Um, and three of those four guys are lawyers. So they, uh, they're good at, uh, finding <laughs> things in, uh, written documents. Yep. So they're good at finding, uh, finding things that need to be explained a little more. Logical or, flaws. Exactly. Yeah, no. exactly. And usually it's fixed with just a sentence here or there. Um, so I do that and then, uh, then send it to New York and Emily Bessler, my editor at Simon and Schuster, uh, Emily Bessler books was an imprint of Atria. Uh, so she has her own imprint and she's amazing. And she's the only person I ever wanted to be my editor. And the reason I found her is that I looked in the back of books, uh, people in my genre and I'm like, why is Vince Flynn thanking this person named Emily Bessler? Why is Brad Thor thanking this person named Emily Bessler? And I decided Emily Bessler will be my publisher. And so that's, uh, I should probably that's let I her know. Too. Yeah. She didn't know this. She didn't know this yet. She had no idea I existed. And same thing as I started writing, being a child of the 80s, it only makes sense to pick the star that's going to star in your adaptation of this book that you have a sentence written of. Um, and I thought, you know what? Chris Pratt's the guy. And oh, he really? hadn't been in Guardians of the Galaxy yet, hadn't been in Jurassic World yet. Uh, he had a very small role in Zero Dark Thirty as a yep, SEAL. I remember that. And he was in Parks and Rec. So I saw this transformation from Andy Dwyer in Parks and Rec to the SEAL operator. And I also thought, hey, I need someone who's likable. Uh, on and off screen, because this role is going to require an audience to forgive him, possibly for a lot of the things that I'm about to write about. Um, and I thought about Magnum back in the back in the '80s, and I thought everybody loved Magnum. Uh, you know, all the all the, the the wives loved Magnum, all the dads loved Magnum, everybody loved Magnum uh, because he was funny. He was, you wanted to sit down and have a beer with him. He'd sit down and have beers with his buddies at the King Kamehameha Club. And, yeah. uh, but then he could flip that switch. And there were episodes, it was the first time that a uh, protagonist in, um, uh, in primetime television had killed an unarmed bad guy. And uh, that was in, have you seen The Sunrise? 
And uh-huh. yeah, so I love that episode. It's just it's. Yeah, my dad long. loved that show, so but great. I don't remember. So the, I don't remember. I just I remember like the oh, shirts. It's, right, it's fantastic. I don't remember anything but <laughs> shirts. <laughs> shirts are big. Iconic yeah, yeah. Very so, short shorts. Shirts. Yep, yeah. yep. So I thought about that. And I thought Chris Pratt's the guy. He'll star. And then I'm like, well, I'm choosing my star. I might as well choose my director. And uh, I thought Antoine Fuqua. I love everything that that he's done. He's amazing. Training, Training day. day yeah. Really Training good. day. Incredible. With Denzel Washington, of course. And uh, he did Shooter, which is an adaptation of uh, Point of Impact by Stephen Hunter. And uh, I was like, yep, uh, Antoine Fuqua will direct. And that's who ended up starring and directing. So it, uh, huh. it, so it worked out, which Chris I'm told Pratt happens lives, all the time. He lives in Utah, doesn't he? Nope, nope. He, oh, he doesn't? No, nope, he's in he California. Did. He's in California from, uh, moved around, but from Washington State. I was going to ask if you But he's somebody you want to sit down, have coffee with, have a beer with, and just an awesome guy. When he optioned it, he came out to Utah. We spent a week together out in the, in the backcountry, and he's just a, a solid dude. And being on set with him, you can tell, like, everybody – is happy to be there on that set because he's setting the tone, him and Antoine. Antoine's like the commanding officer and Chris is like the troop commander and they are setting that tone for the entire 350 other people on that set. And so many people came up to me that didn't have to to tell me that they'd been on hundreds of Hollywood sets before, whether it was hair and makeup people or stunt people or whoever it was. And they'd say, I've never felt the way I have on this on this set. But that's all due to Antoine and all due to Chris setting this tone of positivity and they're mentoring people along and everybody wants to be there doing their best work. But I can see how it would be the opposite too. If you had a crazy director, I can see how that could totally set a negative tone or had a star, the number one on the call sheet who was just a crazy person and how that could set the tone and how people would be like, oh, I can't believe I have to go into work today and work with this crazy person. Um, so we had the opposite of that. No, it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about government. It's like, well, why do you put up with those people? In Hollywood, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I guess they're employing so many, so many people. Uh, I yeah. guess, but uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. You get to choose, and Antoine and Chris choose to be positive and choose to be encouraging and choose uh, to mentor people along, and it's uh, it's just really cool to see that. Um, and again, the only reason that came to be is uh, because of a good buddy, uh, Jared Shaw, who in the SEAL teams was getting out. And, uh, it was when I was at Bud's and I said, Oh, Hey, you're getting out. Oh, come, come see me in my office at some point and just uh, let me know what your plans are and let me know if I can, can help you in any way. So we sat down and talked and I introduced him to some people in the private sector and the industry he wanted to get into and followed up with him. And then I forgot all about it. And then five years later, about six months before my first book comes out, he calls and I hadn't talked to him in, in years. And, uh, he says, Hey, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, of course, Jared, how are you? And uh, he said, hey, man, I always wanted to call and thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams. Nobody else sat me down in their office. No one talked to me about transitioning out. No one introduced me to people in the private sector. No one followed up with me. I was just kind of brushed aside by senior level leadership when I told them I was getting out. Um, and I was like, oh, man, hey, my pleasure. How, how's it going? You know, how did, how did everything work out? And uh, he said, everything's great, but um, uh, I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yep, coming out in a few months, I can send you a galley copy, which is like a, I just learned what a galley copy was like a week earlier. Uh, it's like a rough draft and I can send that to you if you'd like. And he said, yeah, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. Like, oh, that's convenient <laughs> for me. Um, so I sent it to Jared. He read it in November. He gave it to Chris in December. Chris read it in the, at the end of December uh, and then called a week later, went to option it. So, yeah. Do you have... Uh, people who are non like acronym pros that read your your early drafts and kind of go be like uh i don't know about this or do people just get on board with the vernacular so fast and and that's my assumption is people 
They do. They just like snap into those. And sometimes you can tell from the context. Like, uh, you know, I pulled down my nods and now I can see at night type of thing. You're like, oh, uh, a nod must be some sort of a night vision type of a thing. Yeah. Um, So a lot of times from context, you can get it. But uh, my editor will say, hey, can you describe what this is? And then I'll just put like little parentheses and say what it it is. But I also brought back, I don't know if I brought it back. I shouldn't say that. But uh, I thought of it as bringing it back because before the internet, uh, glossaries in the back of books in the 80s were so much fun for me to go through and I could go through and yeah, like, it was an extra look at what thing. these things were yeah, and I was yeah. like oh this is so awesome so yeah. I wanted to bring if that back. If you liked back. the book it yeah. was just like an extra thing yeah. to go through. So I put yeah. the glossary in the back and some things are funny I put some some funny things in there and uh, some things are actual definitions but I, so I put that in the back for anybody that needs uh, help with the acronyms but otherwise you can pretty much get it and you know if not maybe it's, maybe it's not the book for you you know I don't know. I, don't, I mean thing. I think once people get into a story, yeah. it also is like, it's, it's also like, like it's, it's another language. It. Some people are like, yes. oh, cool. How, what is this? Uh, yeah. I can look it up. And now you can look it up. You know, you don't have to go to the yeah. library anymore. Oh, they dig it. You yeah. can like look yeah. it up and be like, oh, that's so cool. Okay, got it. But I try to describe at least what it is. But sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm just, oh, everybody knows what a nod is now. Everybody knows what an IED is now after 20 years at war. But no, I might have to spell it out, improvised explosive device or explosively formed penetrator or whatever it might might be. So um, so sometimes I make assumptions that, that people are going to understand. And then I, I go back and I'll add a little something to describe what that means. Because they are a little acronym heavy at times. Yeah. Well, I mean... That's an acronym-heavy profession. Yes. Like, yes. you listen to a group of you guys getting together. You're like, what language are they speaking? Right, and you're like, yeah. uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. I find that uh, certain conservation meetings oh. similar are like <laughs> yeah. that with the departments and then the... The, the package of... The pa- yeah. Uh, oh, it's just like, yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, well, I'd, I'm say, kinda, I'd say... I'm kind of following. I'm kind of yeah. following. I mediated but, a panel at Pheasants Forever this year, and it was the... It was the the governance the governance board for PFQF, you know, an open forum. We're talking about the farm bill, and I kept asking questions, and they'd kind of pause, and I was like, "What is going on with this group?" And then they told me, they ended up telling the whole crowd that they had a bet between the three of them that. Basically, if you used an acronym, you had to buy the other two a beer. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> because they were trying so hard to make it user-friendly, right. make the whole conversation yeah. user-friendly. And it, there was a lot of failures. Oh, a lot oh. of failures. Yeah. It was tough. That was the thing I knew I'd get right in the books was like the acronyms and describing sniper weapon systems and that sort of a thing. Yeah, there's like, a cool factor to that know, stuff so, in a way yeah. that there's not around, in the way there's not around federal policy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you might have to work a little harder at the federal policy. Yeah. Because you could do it, but uh, yeah, it might be a little harder. But uh, but I knew I'd get that stuff. And what I didn't realize was how much of the feelings and emotions behind what I'd done downrange would make it in to the novel uh, and now novels. But in that first one, even through that whole process I just talked about, until I started turning that outline into the narrative, I still didn't really think about those feelings and emotions uh, weaving their way into the storyline. But as soon as I started changing that outline into the narrative, it was very apparent right off the bat that this was going to be an extremely personal writing experience because I'm going to be describing, taking the feelings behind things that happen downrange and applying them to this completely fictional narrative. So if uh, my character gets ambushed in Los Angeles, California, I go back and remember what it was like to get ambushed in Baghdad in 2006. And then I take those feelings and emotions and I apply them to my protagonist in Los Angeles, California in present day. Uh, Same thing with the sniper stuff. I don't have to go seek 
out a sniper out there and find a guy who was in Ramadi at the height of the war and say, hey, what was it like to set up and pull that trigger? And then if I'm taking notes, I'm comparing his answers with someone else I might have interviewed, another book I might have read, another interview I saw on TV, another book I might have read, fiction or non, movies that I've seen, biases I have, whatever filters yeah. I have in place, and then putting it onto the page into my story. Mm-hmm. You know, it all comes right from my heart and soul directly. Yeah, there's no the substitute for a first person. Yeah. Right. It's and like so because it's, uh, we have so much input coming in all the time. Yeah. It's kind of impossible to yeah. to block that stuff out and after I, and, a while. Yeah, and I really think that's what stood out to Simon and Schuster because they see thousands of these things every year come across their desks. And uh, I think that's what made it stand out with those feelings and emotions. That's what made it different from some of the other books out there that they had read and why they uh, decided to to publish me, which is um, you know humbling. Uh, titillate people on your next book. Ooh, Only the Dead. So it's sixth uh, novel in the James Reese series, and it's the most brutal to date, which is saying Come something. on now. It is the most brutal to date. And I didn't start out that way. I didn't say, all right, I'm going to write the most brutal one now. It just kind of naturally happened that way. Um, but yeah, so that one comes out May 16th. And well, uh, give, give the ba- are you, just give the basic... Give the basic gist. There are some unanswered questions from my last novel. Um, so for those who have read it, they'll know what I'm what I'm talking about here. But really, it's a novel of truth and consequences. That's the the theme to this one. Um, and in my novels, James Reese, he holds those people that we talked about earlier accountable, those people that don't you can't really hold accountable in real life, because if you do, you'll go to jail for doing the things that my character, you'll probably uh, be executed in many states. Um, but you can do it through fiction. You can do it in uh, in a thriller, which is very therapeutic um, to write and hopefully to read for, for some of us. But uh, it's him uncovering a lot of his past and his father's past that mm. all connects in present day in a, uh, of course, a conspiracy. I love a good conspiracy, uh, especially in the pages of my novels. That's what I, I loved about some of the books I read growing up was the conspiratorial element to them. So I try to weave that into to my novels as well. Um, so he tends to... He's a he's a thinking man, but he also is someone very comfortable with violence because it's just uh, a natural part of his life. And uh, some people need uh, need to be dealt with in a very harsh way in this book. So when you mentioned therapeutic, I'm at yeah, you get to be um, as the author, you get to be judge, jury, and executioner. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's fantastic. You'll be like guilty. And, and what's so different about uh, about writing screenplays versus this yeah. is that I can do anything. I don't have to worry about the cost of a set piece. I don't have to worry about flying them to Siberia or down to South America or up to Alaska, or wherever. Um, I can just do it. There's no no problem. I can have uh, huge set action set pieces and not have to worry about the cost. Uh, now, when you get Talk, start talking to Amazon and start breaking things down, where you're going to film and what these set pieces are going to cost. Well, now you have to factor that in. Yeah. You can't just uh, directly take what you have on the page and transfer it over onto the screen because there, uh, there are costs involved to a lot of that. So you have to work through some of that. But I love the freedom to be able to do anything that I want on that page. And uh, I didn't know how it was going to be when I got into this. I thought, ah, Simon and Schuster might ask me to kind of uh, take, do you really need to have all the hunting stuff in there? Or does it need to be so violent? Or do you really need to mention this about concealed carry in here? It seems unnecessary. Can you just never have they even hinted that I need to take any of that out? It's been a hundred percent creative control the entire time, which is, uh, which I love. Um, yeah, I didn't you, know slip, gonna be you like slip that. in little bits of political a commentary. A little bit in there. Yeah. Why, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, a lot of authors don't. And you know, I didn't really, you don't really get to know them, those characters in the same way as you do from authors that 
give you a glimpse into their protagonist through how he feels about certain things. So mm -hmm. my character is carrying um, a pistol in Washington, D.C. He's not just carrying a pistol in Washington, D.C. He has to think about the consequences of getting caught. Yeah, it warrants comment. Yes, yeah. uh, because if I'm doing that or if I, <laughs> if I was to do that, um, I would need to, I would think about it. Um, and realize, okay, here's the consequences to yeah. doing this. Um, so my character does as well, and he has thoughts on it. Um, but uh, a lot of authors don't do that. But uh, but I do, and I feel it gives people uh, greater insight into to his character. And because you're going to think about it if you're doing something like that, you're thinking about rules and regulations as we head into the field and these different states and things that are you can do in some one state, you can't do in another. And I mean, you're going to follow the follow those rules. Um, you're not going to not think about it. And just all of a sudden, if I was a writer talking about hunting and I'm putting them in, in the springtime in somewhere else and I have them going deer hunting in a state where you can't do that in that area in the springtime or whatever, whatever it is, um, you're going to lose that hunting audience. And you're like, eh, if he's mm -hmm. doing that, he should at least be thinking about it. He should at least be thinking about why he's poaching and it should make sense for the story. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times you don't, you don't get that. So I try to give the, give what, what I'd be thinking in a lot of these situations. Do you read CJ Box? I have read C.J. Box, yeah. not all of them, because he's a lot of books out there, yeah. and he's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Very, very interesting writer and very popular. A lot of hunting in there, you know. Yeah. Is this character going to be around for a while? Are you getting antsy to explore a different character? Or? Nope. I feel so fortunate that uh, a readership and audience has connected yeah. with, with this character. Uh, so the first one, as you're writing it, people don't know. They think it could be just a one-off right. book. So your first one, as people are reading it, now people find that first book today, they or watch the show first, they realize, oh, or even if they haven't seen the show, they realize, oh, there's four other books, five other books out there. He's probably going to survive. Because that brain tumor wasn't that one. bad Exactly, yeah, yeah. He's going to shake it off. <laughs> he's going to shake that thing right off. Uh, but uh, but the first one, that's why the first one's so fun, because if you're reading that and don't yeah. know that it can continue, then you and the way that I end that one, I kind of leave it up in the air. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. But now that they're out there, you kind of know that mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a serious character. Yeah, I was character. just wondering if... This guy had a lifespan yet, or if he's going to be around for a while? Yeah, I think around for a while. It's I've heard other authors talk about how they, um, you know, they kind of get connected to their, their character, and they're not they really aren't allowed to do anything else almost. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't feel that way. I yeah. love. I just feel so fortunate. So the twentieth book will be like kicking it, it and relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get to that twentieth <laughs> book. Uh, well, yeah. I kind of think about it in in terms of Indiana Jones, right? Still there's going. a lot. There's a lot a crossover there. Like people are like, oh yeah. And you can go back in his story go and back. go forward in a story, oh. and and he he has that longevity, right? And there's a lot in those series. I, I, that people I, love. I, I mean, I'm familiar with the the main one, but I didn't know that there was a lot to it. Well, in every episode, it's like dad, son. Oh yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it's you. like yeah, there's I, a lot there. I very intentionally wrote things into the novels that I'd be able to explore later. Different yeah. families, uh, explore the Hastings family in Africa. A lot of people want me to, to do that. Um, uh, explore the Salute Scouts and and all that. So that'll be something I'm looking at doing in the future. Uh, James Reese's dad in Vietnam, his uh, transition from SEAL into the CIA uh, back in the 70s. So there's a lot to explore there. Uh, into the 80s, what did he do in the 80s? So I t I, and his grand grandfather's on both sides. Uh, so I, I throw that stuff in there too. Uh, sometimes through the history of the firearms that they use that have been passed down. So I put all that stuff in there very intentionally so that I can, uh, I can go back and also 
it garners a little interest ahead of time. I guess. And you can turn it out. into a family business. You can get those kids <laughs> hacking away on the on the on the computers and be like, listen. <laughs> some people have. Uh, yeah, Clive Cussler, uh, his son Dirk Cussler, right? And Stephen uh, King too. Right? He's got to leave oh, really? them all. The, leave them all those executive summaries. So. And... There, there you go. Here they are. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, there's like there's a couple people who have done that. Nelson DeMille is working on his second book with his uh, his son. Um, so that has uh, that has mm. happened. That has that has uh, been a thing. But yeah, and I just feel fortunate that it's connected and people are reading these things and want more. And, um, and now there's, a, and there's a responsibility also because, uh, people are trusting me with this time that they're never going to get back. So whether it's a Instagram post or a blog post that those sentences get as much thought as any sentence in my novel, because people are trusting me with my time there on the social channels as well, on those blogs, on my podcast, whatever it might be. Uh, they're never getting that getting that back. Did so. you ever read the book Misery? Stephen King Misery? I only saw the movie. I, okay. should, probably, I, should, I should read the book. Oh, I? you should read the book for oh. sure. But that's that's the other uh, trap you're getting yourself into. At some point, <laughs> you're going to have some rabid fan who's like, I demand <laughs> to know what uh -huh. happens to your character yeah. because I'm so dedicated to them. Yeah, yeah. There's a book, Landon Beach has a book out called Narrator where he does something similar with a narrator. Um, and it's, uh, it's a really, it's a really good book. It's really clever, really well done. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think I take some security measures. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I tend to still think things that way. I did before I went in the military and I continue to think that way today. It's just a natural way for me to, to think. So I do take a little precautions here and there. You know, it only, only makes sense today where it's so easy to find somebody. Sure. You know? Yeah. All right, guys. Well, may order it now. Can you pre-order the book and you the can, audio right now? You sure can. Okay. You sure can. Yeah, audio, ebook, and hardcover all come out on May sixteenth. Ray Porter is narrating again, and uh, yeah, coming in hot May sixteenth. Order it now. Comes out May sixteenth. Find it. I'm assuming anywhere, uh, everywhere, but any, not any, everywhere books are sold. Okay. Only the dead. The sixth book from our guest today, Jack Carr, available from Simon and Schuster. Yep. Um, only the dead. It'll ship to you soon. You can buy it now. Thank you very much, Jack Carr. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. This has been awesome. And I can't wait to see the new studio. Not that this one is lacking in any way, shape, or form, but I'm really looking forward to seeing the new one. This We're going to awesome. keep we the got a lot of art today yeah. in here. Oh, this is awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate everything. Chapter 10, Killing Proper There is a right way and a wrong way to kill a wild animal, and I don't mean that in a practical sense. An explanation of this is tricky, similar to explaining why it's more pleasurable to spend money earned through hard work than money earned through dubious means. It comes down to metaphysical issues, things of the heart. I was thinking about this one day while I was hunting mountain lions with a pack of about a dozen dogs in southeastern Arizona. They were tall, lanky hounds, most with walker bloodlines, 
owned by my companions Floyd Green and Joe Mitchell, two well-known mountain lion hunters with a combined lion hunting experience spanning about 60 years and 500 cats. Many of their dogs showed physical evidence of past skirmishes with lions, including slit ears, lacerated noses, and scarred muzzles. The injuries were usually suffered when they brought a lion to bay, a term for when hounds chase their quarry into a tree or corner against a cliff or trap it in a cave and then hold it there until their master shows up to deal with the beast. Earlier, I had mentioned to Floyd that it seemed as though a dog would lose his taste for hunting lions once he got scratched a time or two. It's the opposite of what you'd think, replied Floyd. It just makes him hungrier. I was camped with Floyd and Joe at an old abandoned ranch house not far from Aravipa Canyon at the end of a driveway that takes more than an hour to travel. Along this route, on our way in, we saw where something had been dragged across the road from west to east and then down into a dry arroyo. At the end of the drag marks was a dead buck with picked clean bones that had been buried with leaves and dirt beneath a scrubby little oak. The hide was in pieces but still connected to the carcass here and there, like a person who passed out drunk in bed without getting completely free of his clothes. Floyd tipped his cowboy hat and peeled back the deer's skin to show me the blood clots and teeth marks around the animal's neck. He also showed me where the spine had been rung around in circles three or four times. There wasn't a doubt in his mind that we were looking at a lion kill, though it was at least a week old. This was good news. We'd come to hunt this area because a local rancher had lost 50 calves to lions here the previous spring, about nine months earlier, and this was proof that at least one lion was still hanging around. If you had asked me 10 years earlier, I would have told you that I'd never want to hunt a mountain lion. What's the challenge, I would have asked, in shooting a cat out of a tree? The notion of challenge is one of the most hotly debated aspects of hunting. Definitions of the word evolve so constantly and are so subjective that it's hard to find two hunters who define it in the same way. As a way of dealing with the confusion, some of us abide by a more readily definable synonym known as fair chase. It's an ethical term that provides hunters with a guiding principle to abide by. Jim Posowitz, the founder of Orion the Hunters Institute, writes that fair chase addresses the balance between the hunter and the hunted. It is a balance that allows hunters to occasionally succeed while animals generally avoid being taken. Some hunting strategies are such an affront to the idea of fair chase that hunters share an almost universal disdain for them. For example, most hunters would agree that dynamite shouldn't be used for duck hunting because it would take away the challenge. Most hunters would also agree that night vision goggles shouldn't be used in deer hunting for the same reason. Often, as is the case with these examples, our notions of fair chase are enforced by law. It's illegal to kill ducks with dynamite. It's also illegal to hunt deer with the aid of artificial lights. However, fair chase is not universally legislated. Certain activities that are definitely not fair chase such as the pathetic practice of hunting animals inside high-wire fences, is permissible in many regions as long as it's done on private property and with the proper legal permits. Whether or not a hunter chooses to participate in this limp-dicked activity comes down to personal choice. Other issues of personal choice are much more nuanced than this example, though they're taken no less seriously by many sportsmen. 
Over the years, I've met hunters who askew rifles with telescopic scopes because they prefer the challenge of using rifles with open or iron sights. I've met hunters who don't use rifles because they favor the additional challenge presented by compound bows. And I've met hunters who gave up on compound bows in order to take on the even more difficult challenge of hunting with a handmade longbow. However, some hunters who use handmade longbows hunt deer by sitting in a tree stand next to a bait pile, a practice that is considered unchallenging by many guys who prefer hunting on foot in open country with a rifle and a telescopic scope. I generally believe these differentiations to be positive, however nitpicky, because they demonstrate that hunters are thinking people who struggle to define the limits of their world. I know that I certainly do, though I've come to realize that rigid boundaries are sometimes hard to determine. Consider something that happened to me while I was living for about nine months along the Bighorn River in Wyoming. While there, I became friends with a hay farmer whom we'll call Bill. He had a side business raising game birds. He would buy pheasant and chucker hatchlings from a wholesaler for around a dollar apiece and then raise the birds to maturity inside huge tent-light structures made of netting. Hawks and falcons would dive at the birds from above and hit the netting so hard that they'd blast through it like it was wet newsprint, so the upper portions were reinforced with wire fencing. Bill fitted each bird with a little piece of plastic called a blinder, which worked like the blinders you see on draft animals. But while the blinder on draft animals keeps it from getting spooked or distracted by objects in its peripheral vision, the blinder on a pen-raised game bird is meant to keep him from seeing clearly enough to maul his pen mates out of the frustration and anxiety that are hallmarks of wild animals that are forced to live in tight confines. When the birds were mature, Bill would sell them to wannabe hunters for 9 or $10 each. When a client called, he'd go into his bird tent and collect the number of birds that the guy wanted to shoot. He'd put the birds in a cage and load the cage on his ATV and then drive them out into a field. One at a time, he'd pick out the birds and twirl them around with the windmill motion that Pete Townsend from The Who famously used to play his guitar. This would put the birds to sleep, or at least something resembling sleep. Then Bill would form a little hut out of field grass and tuck the bird into it. The timing of this was delicate. He wanted the birds to come to their senses soon enough that they'd fly away when the clients came along, but not so soon that they'd wander off in search of food before that happened. When the clients came out, their activities certainly hinted at hunting. They would lead dogs and carry shotguns and shoot at edible birds that were flying through the air. But while game farm hunting does have these attributes of actual hunting, it lacks the beautiful essence of uncertainty that is to hunting what pan drippings are to gravy. The hunter's success did not come from the fact that they'd studied the species and learned its ways and scouted its habitat. Instead, it came because they paid some guy to raise the birds and then make sure they were put out in a field where the hunters almost couldn't help but find them. One day, Bill invited me to hunt his place. This seemed like a strange choice of words for him to use. While Bill definitely advertised his business as hunting, he in no way actually thought of it as hunting. For him, hunting was packing his horses 20 miles into the upper Gray Bull region of the Absorca Mountains to chase mule deer, elk, and sometimes bighorn sheep on a landscape defined by craggy peaks, narrow trails, and big grizzlies. 
When I asked him about this, he explained that his season was winding down and that there were months worth of runaway birds on the property that had either eluded his clients or escaped his nets. At first, I told him that I couldn't. With all due respect, I said, it ran contrary to my ethics. But then I got to thinking about it. I thought about how these bird species were not indigenous to this region or even to the continent, about how they'd probably never survive the winter, and about how, if they did, their presence on the land was at least as false a concept as hunting for them would be. I also considered how tasty they'd be. So I went out with Bill, shot a few birds, boned them out, and cooked them in a stir-fry. To this day, I find myself thinking about the rightness and wrongness of that hunt. And I only mention it now so that I don't come across as overly cocky about the certitude of my own moral compass. It's helpful to think of the ethics of hunting as a form of religion, and that most people's beliefs are influenced as much by where they were born as by what they've learned since leaving home. I grew up in an area where hunting deer over bait was the normal way of doing things. In late September, we'd sometimes drive to a carrot processing facility near Grant, Michigan, where we could buy a pickup load of oversized and misshapen carrot rejects for $5. We'd then go to our hunting areas and shovel these carrots into a Duluth pack and lug them into the woods near the intersection of deer trails. Once a pile started getting hit by deer, we'd add more carrots and hang a tree stand in a nearby tree. Hunting over bait, I spent an incalculable amount of cold and miserable hours without seeing a single deer. Sometimes the bow season would pass without my getting a shot at an animal, except maybe a squirrel or grouse that passed beneath my tree. The limited number of deer that lived in my hunting area had adapted to the absurd abundance of bait piles in the woods and had learned to simply avoid them during daylight hours. After all, there were plenty of other foods for them to eat, such as the apples and corn in the orchards and fields that were often within a few hundred yards of our bait. So, by using a strategy that some might describe as cheating or as taking away the challenge of the hunt, we were doing something that, in hindsight, had the effect of making deer hunting almost too challenging. Twenty-something years later, I no longer hunt over bait at all. My reasons for this are not based entirely on ethics. Instead, I am not interested in using artificial bait because I am not interested in hunting animals that are doing artificial things. To go out and find a deer by solving the riddle of its natural patterns is far more enticing to me than finding a deer by interrupting those patterns. Baiting is not, in my opinion, a type of hunting that fosters an intelligent understanding of animals. But if you enjoy it, go ahead. My impression of hunting animals with hounds was formed through an equally subjective and haphazard set of experiences. My introduction to this kind of hunting came when I was about 18 years old and was invited to accompany a raccoon hunter whom we'll call Dave. It was the late summer training season when you're allowed to exercise your coon dogs in the woods, but you're not allowed to kill any raccoons. We went out at about 11 p.m. and turned the dogs out of the truck along a two-track. We then drove along with the dogs running out ahead of us, the way you see some lazy people exercise their pets. We hadn't gone a mile when the dogs struck a hot trail and bellowed their way down a slope and across a creek and into the darkness. Dave cut the truck's engine and we listened to the dogs. He could tell from the pitch and intensity of their barks that they had already brought the raccoon to bay. 
With headlamps, we walked down the slope and across the creek and found the hound scratching at a small oak. Up in the limbs were a female raccoon and several of her young cubs. Dave then explained to me that it wasn't good to pull the dogs away from the raccoons without killing one because they might lose interest in hunting if they weren't properly rewarded. So he raised up a 22 pistol that I didn't even know he had and shot one of the raccoon cubs dead out of the tree. After that, I told him I was done for the night, and I honestly figured that I wouldn't be hanging around any more houndsmen for at least a long time. But now, in the deserts of Arizona, I was not only hanging out with a pair of houndsmen, I was doing everything I could to help them. And, as I was learning, the pursuit of a lion is much more complicated than simply shooting an animal out of a tree. The real challenge was getting an animal into a tree in the first place. Doing that required finding something known in the parlance of lion hunters as an overnight track. That means a lion track that was made within the past eight or nine hours. When conditions are right, not too windy, not too dewy, not too rainy, a track of that vintage is likely to retain enough of the lion's residual odor for dogs to be able to pick up the scent and trail it. Yet despite the slaughter of calves that had occurred here the previous spring, and despite the recently killed deer that we found, we had yet to locate a promising overnight track after days of searching for one. Every day, Floyd and I would wake up well before sunrise. Joe would already be gone, having left so early in the morning that it was more like nighttime. Floyd and I would head into the desert with some predetermined landscape feature as our ultimate destination. Mesas, rocky buttes, deeply incised canyons, high ridge lines, saddles, passes, all places where lions are likely to either hunt, sleep, or travel through. Floyd is in his mid-50s and his appearance brings to mind Robert Redford when the actor was about that same age. He's part owner of Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines and full owner of Outdoorsman's, an iconic Phoenix sporting goods store that specializes in high-end European-made optics as well as Outdoorsman's own line of American-made backpack and tripod systems. His line of work allows him to think of chasing lions as a business-related activity which means he can hunt as much as he wants to without having to feel guilty about it. Some years ago, he and his girlfriend owned and operated an aerial photography company. This required Floyd to buy a helicopter. I learned to fly a helicopter in a month, he told me. Meanwhile, I've been hunting lions for 20 years, and I'm still learning stuff. Lion hunting is the hardest thing I've ever done. At least on this hunt, Floyd mostly preferred to look for overnight tracks without the assistance of his dogs. For one thing, he didn't want them to get tired out before it was time to actually chase a lion. For another thing, the passage of all those dogs' paws has the potential to disturb the delicate evidence that a lion might leave while traveling over a portion of the Earth's surface that is covered predominantly in rock, cactus, and grass, surfaces that do not readily collect the tracks of a passing animal. Floyd calls himself a bare ground lion hunter, a description that differentiates him from guys who hunt colder and wetter regions with predictable and frequent dosages of snow, the world's most track-friendly substance. While a big lion can weigh up to 150 pounds and can kill an elk weighing four times as much, they seem to walk about as gently as a balloon hitting the ground. The only place that they'll leave a track is in the sand, and around here, sand occurs primarily in the same places, creek beds, game trails, 
that attract a lot of competing traffic from mule deer, javelina, cattle, quail, bobcats, coyotes, bighorn sheep, and dogs if you let them run out ahead of you. Floyd spends so much time studying the ground for lion tracks that it's begun to affect his posture. His natural stance has his eyes staring at the ground directly ahead of his boots. He's trained himself to tune out everything on the ground except for the tracks of lions. On average, these measure about three and a half inches from front to back and side to side. Perfect, complete lion tracks are far less common than imperfect, partial lion tracks. You might just see the imprint of a few toes in the sand or the outline of a track that's interrupted by a flat piece of rock. The important part of a lion track, the part that eliminates imposters, is the trailing edge of the heel pad. It leaves an impression in the sand that looks like the bottom of three letter U's placed together. When we were out looking for tracks, Floyd and I had many conversations that went like this. Here's something interesting, I'd say. This has got to be a lion. It looks a little like a dog, but it's a lot rounder. You should check it out. Can you see the heel pad, Floyd would ask. No, I'd say. Look for another one, he'd say. Then, finally, it happened. After five long days of doing little but walking and looking for tracks, I found what we were searching for. It was below a large butte in a dry creek bed where a few boulders funneled the animal traffic into a narrow gap. Here you go, I called out to Floyd. Here's a heel pad, sure than hell. Floyd walked over to have a look. His face registered a moment of interest, but then his enthusiasm waned. Looks to me like a coyote track where he spun around in the sand, so it looks bigger than normal, he said. Then a javelina stepped on the back of it. That's what gives it a lobed look. And notice how you don't see any more good tracks ahead of it or behind it, just coyote and javelina. Keep in mind, he went on, Anything can make a lion track once. It takes a lion to do it twice. You find me two good tracks with lobe pads, and then you've got something worth looking at. While I was disappointed by our inability to find a good lion track, I was hardly surprised. Prior to my visit to Arizona, I had had only three physical encounters with wild mountain lions. Each of those encounters reinforced my notion of the animal as a secretive and elusive creature. The first encounter stands out in my mind most visibly. It happened near Clearwater Lake in Montana's Swan Mountains just after I moved out west. That night, I'd been fly fishing for cutthroat trout and I stayed on the water until a little past dark. When I was done, I hiked three quarters of a mile through the woods back to where my van was parked on a forest service road. It was pitch black by the time I began the long and bumpy drive out toward Highway 83. About halfway along, I came to a place where the Forest Service road had been cut into the side of a steep hillside. I rounded a corner and there was a gang of mule deer does and fawns all bunched up in the middle of the road. When I got close, they ran to the right and struggled up the steeply pitched hillside in a whirl of hooves and falling rocks. Just as this was happening, I caught in my side view mirror a sudden flash of movement in the halo of the brake lights. I shoved the shifter upward into reverse so that the van's backup lights would come on, and then I stuck my head out the window to look. There it was, standing within inches of the rear bumper, the first mountain lion I ever saw. He spun himself in a turn that seemed like wine swirling in a glass. With that, the lion vanished into the dark. Over the next few weeks, I thought about that mountain lion far more 
than I've ever thought about any single living creature besides a dog named Duchess that my family owned for about 13 years. I did a fair bit of thinking about what the lion was doing before I interrupted its hunt that night. But I did a lot more thinking about what it did afterward. To the north of where I saw the cat was the largest tract of contiguous wilderness in the lower 48. I was baffled by the mystery of that lion amid all that country. What did it do over the next few days? Where did it hunt? What did it eat? Where did it sleep? How did it react to the world that it encountered? Where did it go? As I pondered these questions and researched the answers, I realized that the people with the most sophisticated understanding of mountain lions were the men and women who hunted them with hounds. By following their hounds as they track a lion, houndsmen get to literally walk in the trail of their quarry. They see where the lion hunts. They see where the lion eats. They see where the lion sleeps. They experience the land on the terms of the lion. They know where the lion goes. The lion hunter is also, I found out, one of the most hated types of hunters in the country. If you think of the conflict between hunters and anti-hunters as a long-term war, the right to hunt lions with hounds is the current frontline battlefield in many western states. This would have been unforeseeable just a hundred years ago when it was common practice for states to offer bounties on mountain lions because of the cat's tendency to prey on livestock. In Arizona, killing a lion would earn you $50. In the 1960s and 70s, western states began to recognize mountain lions as an important part of the ecosystem and also as a species of interest to big game hunters. Most states reclassified lions as a game species and made it necessary for hunters to buy a legal hunting license and a mountain lion permit in order to kill one. There are several ways to hunt lions. You can attract them with a predator call, which typically mimics the sounds of wounded deer or rabbits. Or you can hang around in good lion country, hoping that one of the cats happens to come along. But by far the most effective way to hunt mountain lions is through the use of dogs. In Montana, 89% of lion hunters use dogs. In Wyoming, it's 90%. Over the last 25 years, 65% of all lions harvested by hunters in Arizona were killed with the help of dogs. Anti-hunters have long recognized the importance of dogs in hunting lions. I believe that the more organized factions of anti-hunters camouflage their opposition to hunting in general as a more specific opposition to hunting lions with dogs. It allows them to wage small-scale legal battles against the broader spectrum of hunting without having to conquer the issue head-on. Some of these battles have proved winnable, as it's easy to convince people who have never once hunted or laid eyes on a wild lion that hunting animals with dogs is somehow a perverse activity. In 1994, Oregon voters passed an initiative that banned hunting lions with dogs, though hunting lions by other means remains legal. The same thing is true in Washington and South Dakota. Hunt lions? Yes. With dogs? No. If you're puzzled about how such laws could ever come into existence, consider the results of a 2001 poll of Arizona residents. While only 29% of those polled indicated that hunting should be banned outright, 62% indicated that the use of hounds to hunt lions should be illegal. To be perfectly honest, 
I was inspired by my personal lion experience to reconsider my own suspicions about the practice of hunting them with hounds. I wanted to see one of the animals up close and to experience the thrill of eating its flesh. And the only realistic way for me to do this was to join up with some houndsmen and head into the hills in search of a track. If we got one into a tree and I didn't like the way it felt, I could always walk away without killing it. While we were hunting lions, Floyd's partner Joe slept in the back of his pickup on a pad of carpet. He kept his dogs tethered outside of the truck scattered apart so that they didn't fight or get tangled up. When he got up at 3 a.m., he would pull on a pair of faded Levi's, Danner hunting boots, and one of Floyd's outdoorsman's backpacks, and then he would unclip the pack of hounds and they would take off together into the darkness. They would cover several miles before it got light out, and then another six or seven miles after daybreak. This was an impressive bit of walking for a man who'd retired from the concrete laying business with past injuries, including but not limited to a shattered sternum, concrete finisher, a gnawed leg, mountain lion, and a gunshot wound, sustained after dropping a 357 revolver in such a way that the hammer hit the concrete and discharged around. As Joe walked, he would use a headlamp to study the earth in front of him for tracks. His dogs would range out to the sides and ahead of his line of travel with their noses to the ground. By their specific barks, he could tell whether they were detecting the recent passage of a lion. He spent five whole days this way without any significant strokes of luck. Then, on our last day of hunting, Floyd and I were getting ready to leave camp when we heard a cacophony of bellows coming from Joe's dogs high on the mountain above us. It sounded like someone torturing a gang of opera singers. Even from a great distance, Floyd knew exactly what Joe's dogs were saying. That dog you hear there with the low bellow? He doesn't make noise on an old lion trail, said Floyd. He's too old and wise for that. He only makes noise on a good overnight track. We studied the mountainside where the barking was coming from and soon spotted the flickers of light from Joe's headlamp. He was moving quickly across the face of the mountain. There was a notch in the skyline that marked the entrance to a canyon, and soon Joe's light disappeared into that notch. The sound from the dog's barking began to fade as the distance increased. Joe's voice then came over the walkie-talkie. He implored Floyd to cut loose some of his dogs. Have you seen a track yet, asked Floyd. Any idea what way the lion's going? Is it a tom? No tracks yet, said Joe, but they're really moving the trail. Just get some dogs loose and get them up here. Floyd unleashed six of his own dogs who immediately headed uphill toward the source of the barking. Floyd then turned to me and said, we better get moving. The canyon that Joe and the dogs entered described a long arc, Floyd explained. He figured that we might catch up with them by following a neighboring canyon through a straighter route. We headed across a sage patch, past some saguaro cactuses, and then into the mouth of the canyon. The daylight grew as we made our way into the dry brown mountains. As we walked, Floyd explained the trouble of chasing a lion that the dogs could smell, but that you haven't seen a track from. While the dogs can certainly tell that a lion has passed through, they are not able to determine which direction it is traveling. This can lead to obvious and considerable confusion. As Floyd put it, there's a 50-50 chance that the dogs are taking you in the wrong direction. After a mile of walking, we still hadn't heard the dogs and we couldn't tell where Joe had gone. 
we were unable to reach him on the walkie-talkie as the deeply cut topography interfered with the transmissions. We traveled another mile and then left the canyon bottom and started walking uphill toward a ridgeline. When we got up there, we still couldn't hear anything. I noticed a high, thumb-shaped spire of rock that rose out of the mountains like a city skyscraper rising above buildings half its height. I commented to Floyd that the lion was probably headed that way, or at least that's where I'd head if I were being chased and wanted to elude my pursuers. Floyd replied that the lion still didn't know it was being chased. He'd been here hours earlier and was probably off sleeping somewhere, oblivious to our presence in the world. We pressed on. Hours went by, and the day passed into afternoon. As it would turn out, the lion had indeed headed toward the thumb-shaped spire of rock, whether or not he knew he was being followed. Later, Floyd and I would finally meet up with Joe near its base. By then, the dogs would have lost the lion's trail, and they'd be too exhausted to follow it even if they hadn't. We would find them lolling around on a jumble of rocks. Now and then, one of the dogs would lick a certain rock and bellow, its saliva having released some trace of a lion's odor. Then it would head off in some direction or another, making a ruckus. I would get excited all over again, thinking that I might still get my chance to see a lion up close. But each time, the dog would return, having lost interest in what was becoming an increasingly cold trail. Finally, Joe and Floyd suggested that we start the long walk back toward camp. We all had to be somewhere the next day. I walked away in silence, disappointed that I was unable to learn whether it was challenging to shoot a lion out of a tree. Getting to that final moment of truth had been, quite simply, too challenging. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.